Welcome everyone to the Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. Lawrence City Commission meeting. Um, we will remove to an executive session and when we return, we will give our explanation of how meetings operate for the public. Um, so until then, is there any motions? I move to approve a motion to recess into executive session for approximately 30 minutes to discuss a personnel matter involving a city employee pursuant to the non-elected personnel matter exception, KSA 754319B1. The justification for the executive session is to protect employee privacy. The city commission will resume its regular meeting in the city commission room at approximately 5.33 after the executive session is concluded. I second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, Vice Mayor. Uh, that passes five to zero. We will remove. <coughs> Kurt, you ready with YouTube? We're ready, Mayor. All right. Nope. Just go ahead. We're good. Uh, we have returned from an executive session. We have nothing to report. We will continue the recess until 5.45 when the regular meeting begins. I see you. We're ready, Mayor. Very good. 545. Welcome everyone to the Lawrence City Commission meeting for Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. We have had an executive session. We had nothing to report. Uh, we've kept the explanation of how the meetings operate uh, for the arrival of the general public. So we will allow Porter to explain some of our um, ways. Um. Thank you, Mayor. Appreciate it. Um, good evening, everybody. I just want to remind everybody that for this Zoom meeting, it is being broadcast um, and recorded on YouTube and the city's um, cable access channel 25. I want to remind people to stay muted unless they are speaking in the meeting. And likewise, if you are, you are um, not meeting, please keep your video off and only turn your video on when you are participating in the meeting. We reserve the right to turn people's video on or off, um, or to mute people or turn their video off, just as to avoid distraction during the meeting. And I'll turn it back to Mayor. Thank you very much. Then I will turn it over to Sherry to explain how public uh, comment generally works. Thank you, Mayor. When the mayor calls for public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. 
Individuals will be called on in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Please state your name before speaking and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Thank you. We will move on to the approval of the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Do I have any um, motions? Move to approve the agenda. Second. second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That passes five to zero. That brings us to our recognitions and proclamations. Our first is to proclaim October 24th, 2022 as World Polio Day. Um, not sure that there's anyone particular from the um, Rotary that would like to speak, but if there is anyone in the room who would like to address that, they are welcome now. Anyone? Okay, well, I will read the proclamation. If you change your mind, we'll hear from you in a moment. Whereas Rotary International, founded on February 23rd, 1905 in Chicago, Illinois, USA, is the world's first and one of the largest nonprofit service organizations. And whereas Rotary in 1985 launched Polio Plus and in 1988 helped establish the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, which today includes the World Health Organization, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, UNICEF, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Foundation, and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance to Immunize uh, the Children of the World Against Polio. And whereas polio cases have dropped by 99.9% .9 since 1988, and the world stands on the threshold of eradicating the disease. And to date, Rotary has contributed more than 2.6 billion and countless volunteer hours to protecting nearly 3 billion children in 122 countries. And whereas Rotary is working to raise an additional 50 million per year, which would be leveraged for maximum impact by an additional 100 million annually from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And whereas there are 140 members of the Lawrence Rotary Club 83 members of the Jayhawk Breakfast Rotary Club, 32 members of, of the Lawrence Central Rotary Club who have committed their time, talent, and treasure to continue support of the Polio Plus until polio is finally eradicated from the earth. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim October 24th, 2022 as World Polio Day and encourage all citizens to participate in this observance. Again, I want to make sure there's no one from Rotary. Yay! <laughs> there are several Rotarians in the room, including not all of us who are beyond this line. So um, I'm representing all of us, 1.2 million Rotarians around the world who have been in this fight for the years that the proclamation mentions. And to just um, say what an honor it has been for all of us to 
help eradicate this disease and to invite anyone, whether or not you're in Rotary, to join us. If you'd like to learn how to participate in that, you can contact any of the clubs in Lawrence. Um, it is Rotary's primary mission, and again, this is a worldwide event that you've just recognized. Clubs, uh, over 32,000 clubs around the world will be recognizing October 24th. And we feel that the by the end of 2023, uh, our latest estimation by those who are in leadership in this campaign for the organizations in partnership with Rotary are aiming for uh, the end of the fight, I should say, by the end of 2023. We're very hopeful. So thank you so much to everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Next, we will proclaim October 20th, 2022 as Imagine a Day Without Water. I think we have someone. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Um, I'm honored to be here today to thank the Commission for this proclamation. Imagine a Day Without Water is a nationwide day of education and advocacy about the value of water. It is the responsibility of the Municipal Services and Operations Department to operate and maintain our two water treatment and two wastewater plants, along with the distribution and collection system and environmental laboratory. It is our job for the community not to have to think about the importance of what we do. By having constant and reliable service when they turn on the tap, run the dishwasher, turn on the shower, it takes a considerable effort and energy and resources to constantly treat and deliver safe drinking water and collect and treat wastewater. But the most important aspect to this is the dedication and hard work by our staff for this critical service. Uh, our plants are opened 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and staffed um, during that entire time. We also respond to line breaks and maintenance at all hours of the night um, to ensure no one connected to our system ever experiences a day without water. We have about 120 MSO employees that have a role in this, and I would like to thank them and all that they do for our community. As we look forward, we cannot ignore the disasters other communities have experienced that have impacted their access to safe and clean water services. Our eye is always looking forward on how we could be more resilient, considering our infrastructure is aging with our oldest plant over 100 years old. This requires proactive and thoughtful planning and budgeting. We must ensure we protect our source water and maintain our systems to serve future generations while also being prepared for continuing operations for unseen emergencies or natural disasters. Uh, on, the, on Zoom tonight is Josh Taves, our water quality lab manager. He and his staff have a critical role uh, in what the laboratory does uh, with the monitoring our water quality and ensuring we meet our regulatory operation, uh, obligations. Uh, also be on the lookout for a great video from our communication staff in the next few days that's going to provide a great overview of our water system from the source through the treatment system uh, to the tap and back to the wastewater uh, system and to the river. Um, again, thank you for this proclamation, uh, which coincidentally is occurring on the 50th uh, birthday of the Clean Water Act. And I, I failed to introduce myself. I'm, I'm Trevor Flynn, our Assistant Director for Municipal Services and Operation. Thank you, Trevor. I, I, since you uh, remarked on Josh, I want to make sure he doesn't have anything to say. Are you good? <laughs> Josh. Hi, I'm great. I just wanted to thank everyone for the support. And um, just we enjoy being able to do what we do and, and provide clean water for the community. Thank you so much, Trevor and Josh. Uh, let's carry on. Whereas October 20th has been declared 
as Imagine a Day Without Water across the United States. And whereas for years we have seen communities lack access to safe drinking water and clean sanitation, the crises in Flint, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, and other impacted areas illustrate a severe impact of what can happen to the health and well-being of a community without equitable access to safe drinking water. And whereas variations in weather patterns and the impacts of climate change are causing widespread drought and flooding conditions in regions throughout the United States, putting increased pressure on ill-equipped and ill-prepared water systems. And whereas water supply access is an ongoing issue across the western United States, including water resources in the state of Kansas, like Kansas River and vital resource of water and impacted by pollution reservoir sedimentation, flood control, and harmful blue-green algae affecting public water suppliers and recreation. And whereas, investing in our communities, drinking water, and wastewater systems with improvements to infrastructure will secure a more resilient future with equitable water access for all. And whereas, Imagine a Day Without Water encourages all to highlight the critical importance of reliable access to safe and clean water in our lives and the investment in the infrastructure that is necessary to protect this valuable resource for future generations. And whereas, the City of Lawrence recognizes that water access is essential to the quality of life and all individuals and acknowledges the importance of educating the public about the value of water and the importance of our vital water infrastructure. Now, now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, do hereby proclaim October 20th, 2022, as Imagine a Day Without Water, and encourage the residents of Lawrence, Kansas, to actively learn about community water infrastructure and to use our voices both online and in person to share why water is essential, invaluable, and in need of more investment and to ensure its equitable access across the entire nation. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Trevor. That brings us to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Individuals should also address all comments and questions to the commission. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on these items presented during this time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Is there anyone in the room who would like to make public comment? My name is Dr. Justin Spisa. I'm running for Douglas County Commissioner in District 1 as a Republican candidate. Uh, Mayor Shipley, I'm glad to see you're here tonight. I was a little worried you weren't going to be here. I didn't see your gigantic uh, GMC uh, Yukon SUV out in the parking lot. That thing gets, what, 16 miles per gallon? You know, a, a, couple, a couple weeks ago you sat up there and you proclaimed October 2nd to be Lawrence Drive Electric Day. And that proclamation reads, petroleum-fueled vehicles are responsible for over 50% of our local greenhouse gas emissions and are a contributing factor to airborne pollution and climate disruption, threatening the health of our citizens and the sustainability of our planet. You don't really believe that, do you? You drive a car that's the size of a battleship, 16 miles per gallon. So I got a question for you guys here about the, uh, about the mill levy. I think that's germane to your guys' business, right? So on Sunday, LJ World ran an article uh, about the county commissioner candidates uh, 
and, and some responses that they have. One of the questions that they asked was, in the wake of the 2023 budget being passed, there's been a lot of conversation about whether there could have been any further tax relief for folks in Douglas County, especially given the county's fund balance uh, savings, which weren't used to lower the mill levy this time around. In the article, a Democrat uh, commissioner, Patrick Kelly, said that uh, he noted that the county's budget for 2023 actually includes a mill levy decrease of a little more than one mill, the equivalent of about $1,783,000 in, uh, in tax dollars. So my, I got a couple of questions there. Uh, so LJ World's acknowledging that the mill levy didn't actually didn't actually decrease, but Patrick Kelly is saying that it did decrease. So if it did, in fact, decrease, which it didn't, why did property taxes go up across the board for everyone? The answer is because they proposed three and they approved, or they proposed four and approved three. So they only reduced one off their proposal. It didn't actually lower it. So my question is, LJ World, is that is that misinformation? Hey, Rochelle Val Valverde, is that Excuse misinformation? Me, could you address your comments to the commission? Yes. Yeah, so, so how does that work? So, if, if the mill levy actually went down by one, why do property taxes go up? And if the mill levy, according to Patrick Kelly, actually went down, why is LJ World reporting that it didn't actually go down at all? Can you guys explain the the mill levy to us, please? Bart Littlejohn, can you explain it? So I get a lot of smirks like, like Bart, Bart Littlejohn has there from the community when I'm out campaigning. And you can smirk all you want, but if you vote Patrick Kelly and you're in the next year, next two years, next three years, you're going to be sitting around wondering how you're going to afford to pay your rent, how to pay your mortgage as your property taxes keep going up each year. I've got proposals, serious solutions on how to decrease that and actually Thank refund you. your money. Is there any other public comment in the room? Uh, good evening. I'm uh, here to uh, comment on that uh, rezoning uh, request for that property at 1100 uh, Castle. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the rezoning uh, issue came before the commission. Uh, Commissioner Shipley, Commissioner Sellers voted uh, no on the rezoning, which was uh, great news to the uh, public that was present and all the petitioners uh, who weren't present but who had their hopes, aspirations, whatever tied up in a request that the, that the zoning on that property remained single-family, RS7. Uh, but we had three commissioners that uh, voted to rezone. And uh, the big reason that they gave was Plan 2040. So they all hid behind Plan 2040, which doesn't say destroy single-family uh, uh, neighborhoods. It, uh, it, it says that there's an appropriate place for uh, infill and uh, density. And uh, the mayor had uh, made that very clear that this property was not an appropriate place for the planned density increase that uh, was proposed uh, as part of that um, rezoning request. And uh, I've, I've just felt that when you look at this, 
uh, to hide behind Plan 2040 while you ignore the hopes and aspirations and concerns of the public, that's not being very responsive to the public. And of course, our Constitution, the first words, we the people established this Constitution. President Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address, said we, we consecrate this land uh, to bury the dead who gave their full lives in devotion to a principle that should not perish from this earth. And maybe some of you might remember this from your elementary history. What, what is that principle? That government of the people, by the people, and who, and what else? of the people, by the people, and for the people should not perish from the earth. And what I saw here a couple weeks ago was a complete, let's say, dismissal of the public, of the people that came here and pleaded for protection of their neighborhood. And I hope that when this comes up again, on November 15th, that there'll be some commissioners who will have the courage to do the right thing. Amber Sellers, Commissioner Sellers, I don't know why she changed her mind on this and, 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 and then after voting no, Time. yes, sorry. said that, uh, well, I you, have to you, uh, Sorry, reconsider. thank you. You didn't say your name. Could you say your name well, for us? My name, yeah, Gary, uh, Gary John Bjorgi. I live at 1321 Janet Drive. Thank you. I'm a uh, Vietnam War veteran who paid $100,000 in taxes on thank my you. property on Janet Drive. Thank, thank you. My name's Nicole. I'm addressing all city commissioners, so this will be germane. Former President Obama recently stated that woke Democrats are destroying their party by being buzzkills. Citizens aren't attracted to the angry, buzzkilling woke mob. It baffles me how you don't see that you are buzzkills. Other than the fact that you are trying as hard as you can to censor any viewpoints that oppose the Democrat narrative, it seems that part of your goal is also to make sure conservative Lawrence citizens are painted in an ugly light and made to feel like their values and beliefs are crazy. Local news outlets like LJ World and Lawrence Times work in tandem with you elected officials to push that narrative that we are crazy and the so-called journalists choose not to cover events the way they actually played out or they refuse to cover a conservative political candidate's actual words, instead publishing their own propaganda. It may help you to understand that a few years ago, most, if not all of us, were nine to five people who loved nothing more than spending time with our families and friends. But then, after we saw the atrocities of the medical mandates, censorship, and the destruction of freedom, Jesus called some of us to stand up. So we did, and we continue to do what we feel Jesus calls us to do, day by day. It used to be part of the Democrats' value system to honor and respect each American's religious convictions. I would ask that you look at, in your hearts and allow us to speak the words our God is calling us to speak, allowing us three minutes to do our best to follow God's will as a small ask um, and a religious freedom that should not be taken away from any American. Hi, I'm Amy. 
Is is that microphone on? Mm, I'm a little concerned green. it's not very loud. Hello, hello, hello. It's really not very loud, but it's green. Can you hear me now? Let just hold one second. Let us check. I believe it's working. It's is it is it okay? Okay. All right. I just okay. All right. Go ahead. Thank, Thank you, you, Amy. Um. We have flags up and down our streets about inclusion and acceptance and everyone being treated the same, but we're all not. The working class have to take care of the unworking class and at your say so, if you got two good hands and two good feet, you can work. Stop giving so many handouts and maybe some of these businesses, small and big, will be able to get some help. Okay, sorry, that's for the county. Amber, did you want to participate in public comments? <clears throat> Thank you. Any other general public comment? It's not just us, Amy. She ignored the older guy, too. It's kind of messed up the way commissioners just ignore the public when they come in here and work on other stuff. But I do find it a little invigorating when I see an older guy come in and tell you that you're ignoring his stuff too. Because you guys keep ignoring stuff somehow. And now you got officers that unleash 17 rounds on a guy without clearing the neighbor's duplex. Gonna keep ignoring it? You guys keep buying everything the police tell you. I can't do any more here, right? I can't do any more here. But I'm going to do some things in November next year. Because if we can't have you guys act, we need to get some different commissioners up there that can actually listen and care about what's going on in the community. You, know, you guys are talking about entering into a contract with Connections. I thought we were all high and mighty on Burt Nash. You were going to give land here not too long ago to help them do stuff. What, what, what happened? Did it not go along with 2040? I don't know. We're just dumb citizens out here. What do you expect? Is there any public comment in the room? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Um, I didn't really come prepared to make comment, but I, just the comment about the uh, the rezoning over by Castle, um, that that got me. I've been thinking about that, and then I kind of remembered when um, there was that Stra the the tower near I think Stratford, where I think you're replacing the water tower. I kind of forget, but basically. When it came up, I called. I called. Kind of called out Lisa Larson that should she um, refrain from voting because she was in the neighborhood and it affects her. But that got me thinking. What about this castle uh, rezoning? I, didn't the mayor specifically say that it could affect her property values? Um, I'm just raising the question, do you all think that the mayor should refrain from voting on something that could potentially 
uh, change your property values. And I, and I rewatched that meeting. I believe um, Commissioner Sellers brought up the point that in some cases, when you um, add add more houses, it can actually increase property values. So I, I think that it is a valid question to be asking if commissioners should be voting on something that affects their property values. I mean, I, I've seen the Fink, you know, he's, um, left, he's left the room for votes when it comes to stuff he, like his employers involved with. So I, I think it's a fair question to ask. Next time this comes up, should the mayor um, refrain from voting? Thank you. Any other public comment in the room? Is there any public comment online? Raise your digital hand and Sherry Reporter will call on you. There's no additional comments, Mayor. Okay. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Monica Dittmer. Oh, excellent. Yes, thank you. Sorry, I was a little slow finding my digital hand. Um, good evening. My name is Monica Dittmer. I'm proud to be the director for your Boys and Girls Club here in Lawrence. Thank you, Mayor and Commissioners, for allowing me an opportunity to speak with you all. Uh, the Boys and Girls Club of Lawrence supports a tobacco-free community because one of the club's long-term goals is healthy futures for healthy youth. I understand there's been some discussion at this level pertaining to tobacco use and licensing within Lawrence, so I thought Monica, it might be Monica, Monica. Um, we're going to discuss that later. I, I know you're in uh, general public comment. If you could stay on with us until we get to that item, I would be eternally grateful. Will do. Thank you. Thank you so much. And double check. There's no other public comment in the room or online. No, Mayor. Good, let's move on to the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved in one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Uh, commissioners, is there anything you would like to see removed from the consent agenda? Vice Mayor, are you are you well? Okay. Uh, is there any items uh, that someone in the public in the room would like to remove the consent agenda? Oh, I see you. Uh, item B7H. B7H. Okay, thank you. Anything else in the room? Is there anyone online? Uh, who would like to remove something from the consent agenda? Again, raise your digital hand. No, Mayor. Not seeing or hear anything. Do I have any motions? Move to approve the consent agenda with the exceptions of E4, D as in dog, and E7, H as in Harry. I have a first. I just want to make sure that's right. E. Is that correct? E4, D. Was it D or E? D I or E? I heard E. I heard E. I just want to make sure e. we're pulling the right one. Okay. Thank you. So E7H and E4E. E. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That, that passes five to zero. Uh, that brings us to E4E. So 
So I wanted to pull a couple others off here because you guys are actually approving quite a bit of stuff, amended, redone stuff, several million dollars on different things, but it's focusing on E4E. I'm kind of curious why we're spending over 4% of the grant money to decide how to spend the grant money. And why don't we have expert financial people in our city finance office that know the city and know the needs of the city can't figure this out and save us the $70,000? Because that's, my gosh, that's almost a quarter of what you guys tried to take from Prairie Park right there, just thrown away. I thought we had these, we, we have high dollar, $100,000 a year city employees that are in finance, more than 100,000 that are in finance, that should be able to figure out how to locally spend grant money. They apply for grants on a regular basis and they have to identify how they're gonna spend that money when they apply for those grants. So you guys spending 4% of that money, which is $70,000, more than 4% actually, it's closer to four and a half, just to figure out how to spend the money. That's asinine. Makes no sense whatsoever, especially in a situation where we're in a budget crunch. Thank you. Let's bring that back to commissioners. Any comments? Yeah, I'd be interested if Danielle or Kate, well, it looks like Danielle's on. Da Danny, if you want to talk about a little bit more about what this is for. Yes, good evening, commissioners. Uh, with Planning and Development Services. Um, for this particular grant, there are far more stipulations on the allocation plan than what we normally work with with our community development block grant and our home uh, grants. This is um, using a consultant is something that every other entitlement community that receives home has done in our state, including the state of Kansas. Um, it is a, I would say that as a staff, we would struggle with capacity to be able to fulfill the allocation plan demands. Um, this person will be able to assist us with public meetings, with um, looking at the four qualified populations that this money would be available for um i it's it's our it's our recommendation that we, that we do receive help from that there'll, there'll still be a lot of input from from staff on it but in terms of just the the heavy lift of this grant normally our home allocation gives us 10 percent for administration and they actually upped that amount for this particular grant because of the demands of it and the fact that most communities would need to use a, a consultant to, to carry out the allocation plan. So I, I hope that I hope that answers your question. I'm happy to, to answer any other one. And just so I un understand, which I think I do, that it's to um, it's because of the requirements put on by by home and all through the federal government, the things you have to do to qualify for these allocations and and before they grant you that money to dispose, you have to follow certain things. That's what this consultant's going to be doing to help us follow those federal regulations. This is Danny Walters. That is correct. They will be assisting us with all elements of creating the allocation plan and also the submittal to HUD 
they will assist us with the presentation to, to the governing body about what our allocation plan recommendations are. And they will do any follow-up with HUD if there's any problem with the with the submission. So yes. Thank you, Danny. Any other questions? Uh, let's make sure there's no public comment on this item. Hi, this is Chris Flowers. I just have a quick comment. If if about all the other communities in Kansas have to get in a consultant to figure out how they can spend the money, I mean, this just seems like it's a, a, a bigger problem. Like, why should communities have to get in a consultant to figure out how to meet the, the government's demand? I'm not, I'm not blaming the city in this. I'm just saying it sounds like there, it's, it's, just, it's just kind of BS, it sounds like to me, that all these communities are going to be losing money they could be using to help them themselves instead they're having to spend it on a, a consultant so thank you thank you Chris any other comments in the room let's make sure there's no one online that's all the comments all right let's bring it back to the Commission any other comments or discussion yeah I agree with with Chris I mean it's a shame that the you know the way they I mean some home dollars are all based upon um, distributive shares, and there's no work that has to be done. We just have to make sure we allocate them right. But these dollars um, have a complex set of rules behind it and a complex set that I wish the federal government um, didn't put upon us, but um, they have, and um, it's, it's sad that we're spending federal money to procure federal money, but that's the way it's set up, so I'll, I'll go ahead and support the item. Is that a motion? Okay, I can uh, make sure I get the right motion. I move to award bid number 22040 for consultation services to prepare an allocation plan for home ARP funds to Vic Crow, Kraus and Company in the amount of $70,000 and authorize the city manager to execute the professional services agreement. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you very much. That brings us to E7H. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. My name is Todd Barfield. I'm the Chief Legal Officer of WANRAC LLC. We're based in just down K10 in Overland Park, and we are a fiber network service pro services provider, and we build broadband networks throughout the country for school districts and libraries under the federal E-rate program. And uh, in February of this year, we signed a contract with the, to build a network for the Lawrence schools. Um, it will connect 26 buildings. It'll provide uh, 10 gigabit service through uh, to 23 of the schools and 100 gig service to the three hub sites uh, in the in the school district. Um, and. Uh, I have uh, worked with the, uh, we have worked with the engineering department of the city and with the city uh, attorney's office to negotiate an MOU that will allow us to work in the, the city right of way to construct our network. Our network, like I said, is 25 miles and is entirely underground. And uh, we have finalized that agreement, which was on the uh, agenda for approval. Um, but was instructed to pull that because there's one issue that requires a special waiver by the council, and that is uh, the the, uh, the city uh, requires a 5% of gross revenues fee to 
to work in the right-of-way and we have we typically will receive in our projects across the country a waiver of that fee by this by the city uh, in recognition of the work that it's it's a project being done for the schools and that that item is what I've pulled this item for to seek your approval on thank you sir yeah uh, let's bring that back to the Commission maybe Randy has I think this was his item of comment. Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Um, you know, we worked everything out in the agreement. Uh, we came down to 5% or their, op their option was a waiver of that. And it's totally within the City Commission's discretion where they want to go with that. And that's really the only issue remaining for the MOU. And is this 5% on... I, mean, I don't know who this would ask the question for. Is all the work for the school district or is some of the work for the school district and some of the work for their own? Uh, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. This is a 5% on gross revenues regarding the fiber and, and what they what they do and the revenues that they procure from the fiber. Uh, I think they are only asking for a waiver for the, for the services provided to the school district and they, they would pay 5% for any private or any commercial or any other uses of any other services they sell. But uh, Wayne Rock could confirm that. Yes, that's correct, Randy. Your statement's correct, Randy. It'd be for the school district. Correct, that's the, the waiver request. Thank you. Uh, any other questions or comments from the commissioners? I have a question, Mayor. This is Commissioner Larson. And my question is to the um, to the gentleman is is when you put your bid together for this, did you um, account uh, give the school district a five percent discount um, based on their services? What you would you would get for this? Uh, we gave a, a significant discount, greater than five percent, to obtain this contract. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Any other commissioner questions? Maybe I'll ask that question a different way. Yeah. Is this, is this a, would the 5% I mean, is the school district directly paying the 5% whether or not we waive this or? It, it would be an additional charge under the agreement. You would charge the 5% well, to the school district? Yes, be included and pass through. Pass through to the school district. And have we heard from the school district on this? Yeah. <laughs> Randy, have we heard from the school district on this? This is Randy Larkin. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I have not heard anything from the school district. I'm not aware that there's been any communications regarding this with the school district. This was negotiations between Wanrack and the city. Any other questions from commissioners? Let's go to public comment. Is there any public comment on this item? Seems to me you guys were caught off guard with this and I'd suggest that you push it and talk about it before you vote tonight. Any other public comment? Any public comment online? No, Mayor. Thank you. Um, I'm, I, I don't know how the commissioners feel. I'm about to find out. I put out 
to a certain extent that we shouldn't be having this on a regular agenda item if it's this complicated or requires this much conversation. Um, maybe the city mayor, city manager would like to respond to that. Uh, we, we could definitely bring it back at the next time and uh, uh, reach out to the uh, school district to engage them on an opinion on this. I don't, I don't want to put you in, in that spot not having heard from my commissioners. Is oh, I agree. I would, oh, okay. <laughs> I would definitely feel more comfortable with the school district. Uh, it's, it seems as if we may now have somebody in the audience that's from the school district. <gasps> oh. Oh, please. I'm David Feneri. I'm the IT director for the school district. Okay. And so I'm not exactly sure the question you're asking me, but feel free to. Well, I guess the, the question is, is the, if we don't approve this, is the school district paying money from the school district budget to the city to cover this, or is this already built into the, to the fee? Is it, a, I guess, is it a pass-through to you? It, it would be a pass-through through us, but it's not part of the contract at this time. Okay, so it would be to our advantage if it was waived because that way we wouldn't have to come up with a 5% a pass-through from WANRAC, okay? And just to let you know, yes, WANRAC did come in well under on bid um, compared to the others, you know, so they are treating us well on that. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, and Commissioner this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I just want to let you know if this is the only issue and it will just be a matter of adding one clause or no clause, the City Attorney's Office just did not want to do the waiver of its own without bringing that to your attention. And if you wanted to waive it, we have no objections. And if you don't want to waive it or do something differently, we have no objections. But anyway, that's that's where we are on this agreement. But this is Commissioner Larson. I got a question. So, I, if I heard the school district rep correctly, it, this item is not in their contract. If it's not addressed in their contract, then why would the school be responsible for the 5%? I'll answer that. It, there is a clause in the contract, not to get too technical, but these types of fees can be passed through to the school district. Okay. It's not specifically called out. Well, I think we bring it back. I mean, I'm generally open to the idea of working with the school district and Randy and Craig talking to the school district and making sure we're all on the same page and then bringing that back with your recommendation, but do that on the, another agenda. Yeah, and I want to be sure that is November and that all the parties realize. Uh, so do you, manager, that would be the first of November and that we have capacity for that? Yes, on this on this matter, we can get it back. Have we given you the direction you need? Well, I think we would want to make a motion to refer the item. Mayor, uh, yes, Vice Mayor. Yeah, um, I would like to also know what the uh, the financial impact would be for us if we did um, waive this five percent. Okay. Yeah. That okay. Thank you. Um, you had a statement or question? Uh, just a, just a statement. Um, from from the school district perspective, I mean, just looking at lead time and, and working the processes, as you guys know, um, pushing it would push us farther out for getting this set up for schools. We have other contracts that we're closing down behind it. So um, I would ask that you, know, you would consider that at least. 
our next available opportunity would be November 1st. Okay. Staff? Okay. Yes, we can make that happen. Any other questions? I want to make sure we have everything clear for staff to make that happen on the 1st. Yes. Sherry, did you want a motion from us? Yeah, I think um, so yeah, I'd, we would move to defer it to the November to 1 meeting. That would be great. I'd move to defer item EH, I mean E, what was that? E7H. Thank you. E7H, the November 1st meeting. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, uh, the school district, uh, for sending someone. Uh, that brings us to our regular agenda items. We will receive a report on the 2022 Community Satisfaction Survey results. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. My name is Porter Arneal, Director of Communications and Creative Resources. The city entered into an agreement with the ETEC Institute to provide a community survey in 2022. This survey is a statistically significant metric to assess satisfaction with the quality of city services. This is the fifth community survey administered by the city and was tailored in part to provide additional benchmark data and updates to progress indicators in the strategic plan. Similar surveys were administered in 2007, 2011, 2015, and 2019, and all community satisfaction survey results are available on the city's webpage. Surveys were mailed to a random sample of households in Lawrence. Households that received the survey were given the option of returning the survey by mail or completing online. A total of 857 households completed the survey. For 2022, ETC Institute also implemented oversampling of demographic groups in the city. This involved oversampling minority groups, residents of Lawrence who identify as black or African American, American Indian, and Alaskan Native, Asian, and Hispanic Latino. To ensure the completion of a statistically valid number of surveys beyond the number expected based on census data, given the group's relative portion of the city's population. This provides the opportunity for the city to run statistically significant cross-tabulations of key demographic groups. In addition to providing further data related to effective governance professional administration, the survey will provide data related to the six commitment and five outcome areas in the strategic plan. Before I introduce Ryan Murray of ATC Institute to provide his presentation, I want to say thank you to all of the more than 1,100 people who participated in the survey. Uh, we know that this takes time and uh, we really appreciate everybody's effort and willingness to help us on this important survey. It gives us a lot of good information. And now I'll turn the podium over to Ryan Murray, Assistant Director of Community Research at ETC Institute. Sorry, I'm getting in your way here. There we go. And yeah, if you just share that when you're ready. All righty. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Commissioners. Thank you, Mr. O'Neill and Mr. Owens for having me this evening. It's a pleasure to be back in Lawrence. It holds a special place in my and my family's heart. So uh, I believe I need to share this screen, correct? Correct. Oh, no. Okay, there we go. I'll go up to the Zoom meeting. There you go. Am I good? You're good. All righty. All right, thank you again for having us this evening. 
All right, uh, so a few familiar faces from 2020. Uh, a lot has changed since then. So just a brief introduction. Uh, Mr. O'Neill already introduced our firm briefly. We're based in Olathe, Kansas. We've been there about 40 years. Uh, we specialize in market research for local government organizations, primarily working with municipalities, park districts, county governments, a lot of state DOTs across the country as well. Uh, but this is kind of our bread and butter. This is what we do most frequently, our citizen satisfaction or resident satisfaction or assessments. And so we're here to present the results from 2022. The agenda for tonight is purpose, methodology, and demographics. We'll just briefly discuss those. I'll go through some of the major findings. Uh, we'll summarize, and then I'll be free for any questions afterwards. So the purpose of this survey, as in years past, is really an objective assessment of primary city services or core city services. We also measured trends from previous surveys. That helps you kind of get an understanding of where you've been, uh, where you're going, and, and where you could potentially be. Uh, we also wanted to measure your performance against other uh, communities nationwide. Uh, more so, we want to use our KC Metro average, which is really the most aggressive or most robust average of communities that we have. We do a lot of work in the metro area, so any comparisons to those metrics are surveys administered by ETC Institute, usually on a regular basis with folks that really have inherently uh, use this as a part of a budgeting and decision-making process. So when we get to benchmarking, we'll see how well you can perform both to U.S. and KC Metro averages, and you'll get a really good idea of how you're performing against other really high performers, uh, not only regionally but also nationally. This is really our, our most robust average that we have. Beyond that, the design of the survey was done in such a way to develop priorities for improvement. That's our important satisfaction analysis. I'm sure you've all uh, reviewed that or seen the report or from last year excuse me, from 2020. Uh, the design of the survey is done in such a way to ensure that we develop these priorities for improvement. We'll show you just a couple of those. I'll interpret those for you, but the full report has a few extras uh, than what we'll present here this evening. And when it comes to methodology, Mr. Arneal already kind of indicated that this was a mail and online survey. So first what we did was selected a random sample of residential addresses from all residential addresses within the city. We mailed out surveys to a group of those homes and then we followed up online via text message and other means in order to gain that 800 completed surveys, but that's not enough. We also need to ensure that those results that we collect are representative of the community. In a couple slides, we'll see the demographic breakdown for race ethnicity of the, the sampling from the random sample. In addition to the random sample, Mr. Neal already indicated this as well, we conducted some oversampling. Now what that is is really a non-random sample of responses that are collected in addition to the random sampling goals to ensure a statistically valid number of responses from those groups that otherwise don't exist at high enough levels in the community to provide us statistically valid results. We'll see in the demographic slide in just a moment, some minority populations exist at five, six, seven percent. For the goal of 800 surveys, we would inherently not collect enough surveys to statistically analyze those against maybe the white counterparts which make up the majority of the community. So what we've done is equipped the city with additional data that gives us the ability to make those statistically significant comparisons. What we're also doing in the background, which we don't have ready for tonight, unfortunately, but we should by the end of the month, is an interactive data dashboard, which is really going to put all that data at the fingertips of staff. And so Mr. Muhammad, I believe, is your DEI coordinator. 
He's going to be very interested in that dashboard. And our plan at ETC Institute is to work closely with staff to interpret, analyze, discuss those results. And then I'd be happy to make another presentation at either a work session or another council presentation to ensure everybody has those questions that we need to have answered, uh, answered at that point. Um, tonight we're focusing on the random sampling results. So the 857 completed surveys from the random sample of residents, which basically indicate the overall views and perceptions uh, of Lawrence residents. And so tonight there won't be any discussion really in these results on oversampling. Uh, the city staff has really only had that about two weeks. So we're trying to get that incorporated into a dashboard that will develop, submit to staff, and then walk them through that process and answer any additional questions on the oversampling. I just want to make sure we touched on the oversampling tonight. That's a new feature that we haven't offered uh, to the city of Lawrence before. So I just want to make sure that we covered that and I can answer additional questions either now or at the end, yeah, please. So to be clear, so at a later time, this dashboard will be able to give us some more, give us that multivariate analysis. Yes, and what we want to really do is use those more robust sample sizes of our minority populations to find statistically significant differences right. in satisfaction or usage or ratings. And so that's what the oversampling is done for. We do this in other. Uh, communities across the country, and usually it's that DEI coordinator uh, that will help internalize that data at a city level, use that, dig in, pick at it. And what that data is best at doing is answering questions that staff or council has or commissioners have uh, about the results, and specifically about those communities that often go underrepresented in our overall research, uh, which is most frequently the case in random sampling. So this uh, is also, um, sorry, I, I got way off here. Uh, so we talked about the mail and online random sample to the city uh, based on online administration, which was a majority of our surveys. It took about 15 or 20 minutes for most folks to complete, so a thoughtful exercise that required a good amount of time uh, for, for really no incentive other than helping the community. Uh, as Porter mentioned, or excuse me, Mr. Arneal mentioned, goal was 800. We exceeded that goal again. We did as well in 2020 uh, by 57 surveys. Now, we've been in business for for about 40 years, when we go to sample a community and a community that we know well, our goal is to hit that 800. Uh, so to see the ex extra surveys being completed uh, just goes to show how invested folks really are here in the community. The oversampling took a little bit longer, uh, but that's because the groups that we were targeting are those groups that exist at smaller levels in Lawrence, and it's just really tough to kind of pick in and get those results back. But we were able to accomplish those goals as well, and we have about 75 to 100 surveys for all of those minority groups when you group the random sampling uh, with the non-random sampling or the oversampling. The overall results for the discussion for this evening of 857 results gives, it, gives us a margin of error of about 35 3.3% at the 95% level of confidence, which basically means 95 out of 100 times we get 857 surveys, we're going to see these same results plus or minus our margin of error of about 3.3%. When we look at our demographics of our Random sample, they closely mirror uh, those census numbers. As you can see, census is the first grouping. Out to the right is our survey sample. Uh, we've oversampled on a couple groups, just barely, uh, you know, a survey or two in a couple of those categories. But for the most part, uh, those random sampled results accurately reflect uh, the city of Lawrence here. We also want to make sure not only are the demographics uh, associated with the survey matching the community, we also want to make sure those survey responses are found within every aspect of the community. We don't want to undersample particular areas of the community. We know that some areas are more likely to respond or could potentially be more likely to respond. So it's our job to ensure that we have good coverage or good distribution of responses from residents throughout the city of Lawrence, which we achieved. 
when we have, talk about the bottom line up front, we'll go through two slides here. About 90% of residents are satisfied with the city as a place to live compared to only four uh, respondents that gave us a, a dissatisfied or, or indicated that they weren't satisfied with Lawrence as a place to live, which is an astounding ratio when we start to look at that and break that down. Another three quarters or so indicated that they're satisfied with the overall quality of city services. So overall, residents continue to have a very positive perception of the city of Lawrence and the delivery of those key services that were assessed in the survey. You continue to set the standard for the delivery of services in key areas and Talking back to that KC Metro average, you really beat that Metro average in a number of key areas, uh, but you also were well above the US average in a majority of the areas that we were able to assess, 44 of the 53. Now, not quite a majority when we talk about KC Metro average, but again, those are high-performing organizations that have internalized this type of exercise in their city government, uh, and they utilize these results on a regular basis, uh, and they're striving for, to be the best as well in their own categories. So that's a really tough metric, uh, but to beat that uh, item in just about half of those areas, uh, it's, it's a really successful exercise here. When we talk about trends, it's a mixed bag. Uh, it's not as bad as we've seen in other communities from 2020 to 2022. Uh, but you saw increases in about a third of the areas, 31 out of 107 between 2019 and 2022. Now, the 2019 survey was kind of administered towards the end of the year. We presented just after the first of the year in 2020. I think this was my second to last live presentation I did for about a year and a half. Um, so. <laughs> things have been mixed. Uh, but you saw increases of 5% or more in eight areas. So there were some really bright spots. We'll talk about trends in just a little bit. I've highlighted a couple of your top priorities for improvement that actually saw increases uh, since the previous survey. So you're moving in the right direction continually. But the most important thing is that residents are still telling us that the perceptions of what you're delivering are still really high quality, which is really important. Our priorities for improvement actually remain the same from that 2019-2020 survey. You can see those up here, maintenance of city streets, flow of motor vehicle traffic, codes and development or codes and enforcement, uh, which is a really difficult item. Most residents aren't super well informed about what those codes are, uh, how they should be enforced or how in practice they are enforced. Uh, so mixed bag of ratings in that area isn't uncommon. Uh, and also we can see those items kind of rise to the top because people think they are important, uh, but sometimes they're misconstrued about maybe what the specifics could be related to that. And then effectiveness of city communication with the public, and we'll dive into that in the last section of the, the presentation here. So to kind of reiterate, perceptions of the city remain high. Over half of respondents gave satisfied responses to all of these or seven of the nine areas that are assessed here. Value received for city tax dollars and fees is always a difficult area to kind of receive tons of satisfaction for. Uh, enforcement of city codes and ordinances is also one of those areas towards the bottom of this list as well higher or elevated levels of dissatisfaction, uh, but still good numbers of neutral, which is really that passing grade. So everything we'll see tonight pretty much is shaded in blue, gray, and red. The blue items are those most satisfied items, so we're either very or somewhat satisfied. Neutral's kind of that passing grade. Hey, I might not be able to tell you directly that you're doing a great job, but you're definitely not doing a poor job in those areas, and we see that in some of those gray ratings throughout here. When we talk about perceptions of downtown, availability of vehicle parking, how safe you feel in downtown Lawrence after dark are really our two biggest areas of dissatisfaction. We came here shortly after um, 
the pandemic kind of started to ease. We met some friends from college downtown with our children, uh, and we noticed that a lot of businesses is kind of built into the parking on Mass Street. So I wonder if that is maybe uh, some issue with the availability of vehicle parking downtown, but still receiving over 50% satisfied responses for that particular area. So still doing pretty well there. Uh, elevated levels of dissatisfaction still with those two particular areas. When we talk about major categories of city services, this is kind of the litany, the major list, the core services that the city provides for the public. Two of our top priorities for improvement receive the highest level of dissatisfied responses. That's flow of motor vehicle traffic and maintenance of streets. I always try to suggest to my higher performing organizations like Lawrence, that's really what you'd like to see as top priorities for improvement are those areas where you're continually kind of beating back time. Uh, as soon as you repave a street, it's completely in disrepair after the first snowstorm. The maintenance schedule is something that most residents don't have on their mind. So even somebody getting a repaved street on the street just south of you and your street didn't get hit or won't get hit until next summer can have kind of a dramatic impact on your perceptions in some of those related areas but still performing very well when we're talking about core services like trash and yardway services near the top, quality of your library, parks and recreation, water and wastewater, uh, an area that you always perform very well in, and quality of police services making it right there in the middle. I want to interpret some of the maps as you mentioned, or as we saw earlier, distribution of responses. We're still seeing these at census block level groups. We can do some additional analysis. We can also include maps in the dashboard that have different segmentation or different breakdowns of the results. So if there's any other boundaries that you would like to definitely pass along to us, we can include those in the dashboard as well as the census block groups. This is one of the smallest kind of geographic areas we can display on a map like this. And what this is showing is the mean average or the rating uh, from respondents within each of those areas. The overall maintenance of city streets and utilities, this is our top priority for improvement this year. Some areas um, saw relatively satisfied responses. Most areas in neutral with a few areas kind of centered in that orange. I also know 23rd Street's under construction. That doesn't make a lot of people happy. They'll be happy in the next survey when it's completed, but for now, folks are definitely kind of telling us, uh, hey, we're kind of sick of the construction, which is very common in organizations that are uh, performing construction uh, across their city. When we talk about overall flow of motor vehicle traffic and congestion, right along the lines of our maintenance of city streets and all the construction we're doing, so improvements in progress kind of get us through, uh, but then we should see a rebound in some of these results, hopefully, in the next time we do the survey. We talk about benchmarks, you compare favorably both to our U.S. and metro averages. As you can see, the metro average is very strong. It definitely gives you a run for your money in some key areas. The arrows out to the left are indicating significant increases or significant variances in the positive from the U.S. average with two areas towards the bottom that received lower than U.S. average uh, levels of responses there. For the most part, the city's performing very well uh, and very competitive uh, with that KC Metro average in a number of key areas, specifically customer service of city staff I see. 66% of residents were satisfied with that particular item. That's a really difficult item to succeed in. Over two-thirds of respondents indicated you're doing very well. When we talk about U.S. averages, you can see that's hovering around 40. But then we talk about US, or KC Metro, uh, we're seeing just a little bit of an uptick. So you're performing extremely well in that particular category. Just another really tough one, but 
still. Very good job for all those forward-facing employees that will likely get calls about K-10 or issues in county roads or issues that aren't necessarily the city of Lawrence's issues. And sometimes that customer service representative has to tell that person you have to call a different phone number or, hey, you have to go to this particular resource. And so that person's likely left with a dissatisfied response after that particular interaction. But city staff, as you can see in these results, are doing an excellent job trying to beat that back or combat that. And we talk about perceptions of your city overall quality of services, image, value received for tax dollars on the first two right along the lines of those KC Metro averages. Um, and when we talk about value received for city tax dollars and fees below the KC Metro average, but uh, 10 points, 11 points above uh, the US average for that particular rating, which is fantastic. Next, I want to discuss trends. There's a lot of trends. I think there were over 100 items uh, that we were able to compare. I could have taken you through the list of all the charts that are in the report. I wanted to talk about notable short-term and long-term increases and decreases here. The notable ones for me are those high, highlighted items or those bolded items. That's traffic signal coordination, overall flow of motor vehicle traffic. Those are the two areas that you performed in a pretty good light, but it was really important to residents that you continue to work on that. It shows in the survey that you worked on it, you addressed those issues, and you've improved those ratings over the last couple of years, which has been difficult. Short-term decreases, quality of police services. I wanted to just touch on that briefly. That's kind of a trend we've seen nationally. Um, some communities have kind of skipped that trend, but a vast majority of what we're seeing, and even in the U.S. benchmarks, we're seeing a, a pretty significant decrease in the quality of police services, or at least those ratings uh, nationwide. When we talk about longer-term trends, uh, we're seeing east-west travel in Lawrence uh, bumping up the list, which is interesting given uh, the, the construction on, on 23rd Street. I'm not exactly sure when that began, but um, that's very interesting. Long-term decreases, uh, some of that outdoor aquatic facilities, some of those recreation decreases that you might see in the trends, you should think back to when we close things down, how long things have been opened, if we're able to staff some of those facilities, or what some of those internal problems we might be dealing with there uh, are really important. Priorities for investment. So we've already seen our overall quality of services and the satisfaction for those particular areas. It's not enough just to understand satisfaction. For areas of low satisfaction, we could dramatically improve uh, service delivery in those areas. We still might not see the needle move in terms of overall quality of services. So what we need to do is also understand the emphasis or the importance that residents also place on those items. So we want to mostly focus on items that are below average satisfaction, above average importance. By doing so, we should begin to move the needle and other key statistic areas of those, those particular areas. For example, overall maintenance of city streets and utilities receive some of the lowest levels of satisfaction, highest level of importance. Major moves in that particular area could have a dramatic impact on not only overall perceptions of key city services, but also those public work specific areas as well. Along with uh, overall maintenance of city streets, flow of motor vehicle traffic, overall quality of planning and code enforcement, and effectiveness of city communication with the public are all top or high priorities for improvement. Now these are displayed just slightly differently in the report. I like to provide just a little bit more insight on this. The item at the top highlighted in that brighter pink or red color that's the item that's of most importance, also received some of the lower levels of satisfaction out of the 12 items, it was 12th on the list at 30%. That's the item that we can definitely try to move the needle on to improve overall or general satisfaction, but the three items right below that are also gonna have a major impact on overall satisfaction if we're able to move the needle there. 
quality police services, while not a high priority for improvement, in fact, in your report, will be listed as a low priority. But if we don't get out in front of it, start to communicate with residents what we're doing to ensure the safety of folks downtown, what we're doing to ensure parking enforcement and other uh, particular areas that received higher levels of dissatisfaction throughout the survey related to parking enforcement, police services. If we begin to combat those with communication and outreach as to what we're doing, we have a shot at making sure that area kind of remains lower in importance, higher in satisfaction, and stays out of our top priorities for improvements. Now, I harp on communication because there's not a lot that most residents know what we're doing to prevent crime in the city, and that's one of our metrics on the survey, city's efforts to prevent crime. But we can definitely use some of those most used or most frequently effective communication sources to let folks know what we're doing. Here's what we're doing to combat this. Here's what we're doing to address this particular issue. And we can move the needle on some of these items just by informing our residents as to some of those items that we're working on. We've also delivered a matrix. Uh, it's basically the same information that you're seeing here in matrix form. Bottom right are those areas that you should focus on most urgently uh, in order to improve their satisfaction. Uh, items top right. Continued emphasis, you're doing pretty well. Above average satisfaction is just above average importance as well. Over to the top left is where you see exceeding expectations, and that's where we see the bulk of your services. Those are the services you're continuing uh, to provide at high levels. Residents understand that. They've dropped off of the major importance scale, uh, and they're just performing very well uh, in terms of overall satisfaction, lower importance there. When we talk about communication, the city's really the, the top uh, source for communication for the most part, uh, but I wanted to also highlight some of these benchmarks specifically in this section. Responsiveness of your social media, 26 percentage points above the national average, 12 points above the national average for availability of timely information, efforts to keep you informed, 12 points above the average. So folks' uh, perceived notions of your communication activities are extremely high. We could continue to work on that momentum to make sure that we're utilizing some of the other data that was collected to understand social media is not really the most used source of communication for residents. Most folks, and what's moved into the top prior or into the top slot this year, is local media outlets or the newspaper. In the past, it was not uh, the highest uh, or most frequently used source of information. It's newly number one. In 2020, the city's website was fourth, but has actually moved to number two, which is a fantastic improvement. It means you're the primary source of information for a key group of residents throughout the city. It means that you can kind of control the narrative, but most importantly, uh, you can give the facts and you can actually tell people what you're doing from, from the horse's mouth, basically. We also saw a Parks and Recreation Guide drop from first to third, but that means a lot of residents are still receiving that. They're still viewing it. It's still a primary source of communication for those folks. And what that really helps with are those households with children, usually those households with children under 15 or under 10. Those are the folks that are most interested in that particular communication source typically. Uh, and so we know that we're communicating well with those groups as well, meeting those Parks and Recreation needs in which you perform very well in the survey. Now, not only do we ask how often you're using some of these sources, we want to know how effective they are, and what we see are your two sources right at the top of this list, followed by direct mail, and then local media outlets actually kind of inverting to go to four in this particular area. It's not that folks think that it's ineffective, they just think to a lower degree it's as effective as some of the other sources of information. So continuing to use those sources of information to inform residents about what we're doing, how we're doing it, and how we're addressing some of the top priorities for improvement can go a long way to ensure perceptions and we're really that we're setting the bar for those perceptions ourselves. In summary, 
residents have a, a really high perception uh, of the city. We're going to dig in deep to that oversampling. We're going to find some areas where different groups are underserved or different groups feel differently. Uh, we see that in the results already. We saw some folks are not satisfied. You know, 4% are not satisfied with the overall quality of city services, and that's going to happen. The oversampling is going to give us a lot more insight. There's going to be a lot of conversations I'll have with staff about how to interpret, utilize, analyze those particular results. It's going to be a lot of positive good or a lot of data that Mr. Muhammad, I believe it's Ferris Muhammad, can use in the future to try to help react to and also respond to concerns that residents uh, portrayed in the city uh, survey. You continue to rate higher than the U.S. average in 83% of the areas assessed. So we know that we've set the bar pretty high with the KC Metro average. But when you talk about U.S. averages and comparisons to communities nationwide, you're head and shoulders uh, above that average in all those key areas. You saw a positive increase in ratings in 29 of the areas assessed. So about a third of the areas that we assessed between 2019 and 2022, you actually saw an increase. Uh, not all of those were 5% or 3.5% increases to beat or margin of error, but still an increase in combined satisfaction results. Our priorities for improvement remain the same. I don't like to give this particular spiel too frequently, but the top priorities that the city of Lawrence has um, are the priorities we would want to see in a community. As I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, the design of the survey was done in such a way that we were going to develop priorities for improvement. That was the purpose of this beyond the objective assessment. If I didn't develop any priorities for improvement, uh, you know, where would you, where would the survey guide you or drive you? Now, these areas are all areas where high-performing communities across the country see these as top priorities. Uh, this is what we see most commonly across the Kansas City Metro, is that maintenance of city streets and flow of traffic. So in terms of top priorities for improvement, you're right there with the best of them in terms of these particular issues. Uh, it sounds like the city's made some strides because when we look at short-term trends, 1922, we saw an improvement in those top two areas uh, that are at this list here. And with that, I'll open it up to any questions and make sure that we get anything answered. And anything I can't answer tonight, I have the report with me, but anything I can't specifically answer tonight correctly, uh, I'll take that back and send Mr. Arneal uh, an email. Make sure we get you your response. Thank you so much, Ryan. Stunned um, silence. Um, is there any questions or comments from commissioners? Um, when we're able to dial down in the future, uh, I'm just just curious as well. But I, I kind of figured we would, we would be able to. Would we be able to dial down to cities of similar size and just kind of match up similar demographics so that we can kind of truly see not just the metro, but yeah. specifically city versus city, like, you know, kind of how we're doing. Yeah, yeah. So similar population and demographic sizes. What we've done in the past, I believe, was provided to the best of our ability, Big 12 average. Okay. Uh, not all of the schools in the Big 12 are similar to Lawrence, but there's a number of them that are that are in our database. And I'll definitely work with Mr. Arneal to pull some of that together. We'll basically duplicate the benchmarking charts with that new bar there okay. so you can see those separately. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Vice Mayor? Okay. Commissioner, you want me to do public comment? Public comment and let you cogitate? Mm -hmm. Okay. Is there any? Thank you, Ryan, again. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we'll do public comment here and we might have some more questions for you. Great. I'll hang tight. Is there any public comment on this item in the room? 
Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I would just like to point out, um, I think one of the major areas, or one of the areas we should be looking at is the, the flow of motor vehicle traffic and congestion management, and it, it seemed that, I mean, that was one of the ones in the, the 2019, and I just want to point out, I, I, brought, I brought this up, up before, I, um, and I think we should be keeping this in mind when it comes to the AL traffic barriers. Um, I mean, I think this is showing that people are against that kind of stuff because, um, I mean, it makes it worse for traveling. It's going to add more congestion on to 9th. Um, I, I, and also, I also want to point out something else that when it comes to the, the, the increased satisfaction with east to west travel, um, I'm, I would I'm pretty sure that's directly related to the, the, the traffic signal coordination we did on 23rd Street. Um, I, I supported what we did, and I've noticed a, a change, and I, I'm, I'm very satisfied with, with the, the changes that have been made on 23rd. Like, except at night, I, I think we need to do a better job because um, at night, it just as soon as someone comes up to 23rd off like Lawrence Avenue or Crossgate, um, the light changes. And there's times when I'm going out to like um, Crossgate Drive from where I work, and I, I get stuck at every single light. And this is at like 10 o'clock at night. And we can definitely be doing a better job on that because um, we have in the past. Um, in the past, we had it where it would blink red for the minor people, so they'd have to stop and wait for the what's going on uh, 23rd. And I would like to go back to that, but I'd also be okay if we just made the stoplight um, not turn green right away, but wait, because some of these people, they're just turning right, and they don't even need a stoplight, and it, it stops people going, like, if they're trying to turn right, and I'm going this way, I have to stop just when there's no traffic coming for them to turn right, and it's, it's more stop-and-go driving. I think it'd be... Um, it, it, it'd just be better if we did something at night because it, it's gotten worse at night. But during the day, it's a lot better. So thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment in the room? Any public comment online? You can raise your digital hand. No, Mayor. Great. Let's bring this back to the commission. Any further? Thank you. Are you ready? <laughs> well, I, no, no, because I have a lot. Um, so I'm, I, right, I was looking through the report, so, because I was looking at question 27 and then dropping down to question 30 and help me with my interpretation of this. So it, the person who, so I'm looking at, this is the A, 27 is in regard, question 27 is in regards to the person who completed the survey. And then 30 is as far as the individuals in the household, correct? Um, I apologize. Give me just You're a okay. second. You're okay. I know. It's, it's a lot. I waited through all 512 pages. Yeah. There was a lot this year. <laughs> that oversampling will do that. Yeah. But we're glad we have it. Age of, age of demographics, yes. Okay. So 27 is who completed it, and then 30 is 
just making account for everyone that's in the household. Yes, and 30 should really be the metric kind of that we're trying to get as close to the census as possible on that. Okay. Um, everybody that took the survey should have been over age 18. What we want to see usually there is a good breakdown of all those age groups represented, at least in the survey respondent. Okay. But in, then in 30, we want to see a more household composition makeup uh, achieved and the representation there achieved. Okay. Um, you know, more of my comments... Uh, most of my questions or comments are in regards to what is to come mm -hmm. for us. You know, when I opened this up, I was excited. Results. Um, I don't see this as being a Debbie Downer, but more as a matter of fact, Mary, that, you know, I knew I was going to get the aggregate, but I'm really looking forward to this aggregate since I know many of the questions in the survey reflect you know, a disaggregate number. So whenever we get that dashboard or we get that, you know, regression data or whatever, all the nice technical statistical terms, just once we get it broken down by variables as it relates to age, rent, own, ethnicity, <laughs> then we're really going to, that's when we'll have a whole story. You know, we, we just got part of the story today. Which again is a, is a good story to have, but it doesn't tell the complete story. So I'm I appreciate that, and at least having um, this data as well. Um, to pick, piggyback a little bit slightly off uh, Commissioner Littlejohn's question, um, you know, using the industry standard of the KC Metro, bless you or whatever that was, <laughs> um, you know, utilizing you know, like universities, I know we're looking at it more of a regional approach. Um, so you know, what do those markets, Emporia? Topeka, Manhattan, how do we stack up against them in these particular, just to have that would, would be nice. Um, I'm looking through my notes here real quick. I think most of my, my thoughts on this was that this was a good start for us to have. I appreciate it having the ro robust data set, knowing that we're gonna have some data that's gonna allow us to look at some regression numbers is gonna be phenomenal and having a dashboard that we can really dig into that is going to be great. So. That's pretty much where most of mine was, I, especially in the, the question, especially the questions in regards to communication and social media. I don't want to be biased, um, but I think there's another story to be told there. And so Probably. I don't want us to make any quick judgments around marketing and branding that we're in the process of doing um, that may impact that. But, you know, overall. Yeah. It's statistic stuff. I have fun with it. Yeah. And if I may respond quickly. Please. Um, one thing about ETC Institute, and City Manager Owens understands this. I think I've expressed this to Mr. O'Neill as well. And I hope Mayor and all the commissioners understand um, ETC Institute is not a fly-by-night uh, organization. No. <laughs> uh, we're not uh, here to present uh, the final results and then wait for the call for the next survey. Um, this is an ongoing relationship. We don't really establish these types of relationships with every community, but once we get into the oversampling uh, and getting all of this extra data that can open all of these other insights that we just have never had in any other years past here, um, it's gonna take a, an approach that involves myself, uh, Mr. O'Neill, Mr. Muhammad, and others in the organization to kind of dive deep, uh, to let me know what questions you have, how the dashboard can meet those needs. Um, one thing about the dashboard is we're gonna deliver a draft, really, to start. Um, we're gonna ask for input on what you'd like to see, what you wouldn't like to see in there. Are the maps useful? Should we use different categories? Um, one of the great things about the dashboard is that it'll give us the ability to cross-tab all the questions at once 
but also with filters. So we'll be able to filter by all those other categories. Uh, what we've delivered in the report are robust cross-tabulations with statistical testing there to kind of highlight and bring your eyes to those areas where we see significant differences. But this is really just the tip of the iceberg and the results that we've collected. Um, the ability to analyze responses from residents who are often underserved in a way that doesn't allow for statistical valid comparisons um, is something that I hope the city really takes uh, to heart and understands it can be a real impactor. Um, the other flip of that coin is that it takes a lot of time. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes we re weed through results for statewide surveys, searching for that hidden gem. Um, one of my early tasks as a researcher at ETC was to cross-tabulate every question by every question on a survey. Uh, at the end, I found no statistical variances uh, of any type. Uh, and it was just that first lesson, and sometimes it's not there. Uh, but what this data will do will give the city an extra tool that when we have a question, we can turn to these results, turn to our dashboard, determine if there are significant changes between two different groups, and then start to address those at the root. Right. Not all communities are ready for that. Uh, it was great to have the discussion early on in the survey design process with the city to understand that's where you're headed. Uh, and ETC Institute wants to be that partner that's there to facilitate that conversation, uh, but most importantly, empower city staff to be able to make those decisions. And now you have that toolkit, that data that you can stand behind and also understand that it's significant. Those are significant sample sizes of minority populations that you would not get even if you extrapolated your sample to like 1,500 surveys, we'd still be kind of on the edge on some of those areas. But the exorbitant cost to collect 1,500 surveys, just it's just not really worth it. Um, but the oversampling bypasses the overall sample increase at a lower fee uh, and the ability to give you all of those tools that most communities just don't have right now. So I appreciate your interest in all of this. So would you say for a community like ours, what, what our size oversampling is a is a good practice mm -hmm. since we could not expand it to more but as we continue to grow that might be something that we need to consider yeah you know we've had these conversations in the past with other communities expanding the sample you know so white, white uh, respondents in Lawrence are always going to dominate the right. overall sample. They're always going to be a majority just based on census. I think it was 78.5%. Right. So even at 1,000, we're going to get 785 surveys from white respondents, or we should. Um, that still doesn't really leave enough to have statistically valid sample sizes in all of those other categories. So in lieu of expanding your sample and getting all these results that maybe drive down the margin of error slightly, mm -hmm. um, the best practice really is to oversample those groups. The key of that is, is kind of keeping that out of the aggregate findings right. and understanding that's kind of a pick and prod now. Now we're looking at this specifically to key in on differences. Um, Des Moines, Iowa does this. City of Tempe, to an extent, does this, not by race ethnicity factors, but by character areas, mm. where we oversample key wards within the city to ensure that those results are there for staff to dig in, because some of those wards are significantly lower income levels, higher Hispanic Latino population. Mm -hmm. uh, so they really want to dig in on the background, but the reporting is all done in aggregate to ensure that we're kind of right. looking at things as a whole. Uh -huh. But the city has the ability to pinpoint what's going on in character area five, six, and seven to a really heightened degree, just like you now have the ability to pinpoint issues with those minority populations within the community. Okay. It's, it's phenomenal. Des Moines is doing this as well. A few other communities have done this as of late. Um, it's just something we kind of have to continue to monitor. 
But I think once we work with Mr. Arneal and his team, Mr. Muhammad and his team, and we equip them with this dashboard and uh, some robust conversations about what we're looking at, I think that they'll just run with it. And then in years moving forward, we'll collect that oversampling, they'll get to work on it right away, we'll update the dashboard, and we'll just keep moving. So that's my hopes for, for two. Brian, I appreciate you explaining that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions or comments from commissioners? I'll just say thank you for, for this. I, I mean, and, and for all the city staff, I think, you know, um, I think these results are very encouraging. I think, like you said, we've, as you pointed out, I'm not going to repeat it, but it, it was encouraging to see some of those results and to see, particularly during some difficult times, um, that we still had some pretty high, um, you know, results in, in many of those areas. And, you know, like, and I certainly agree with you. I was looking at the results related to Parks and Rec, and, yeah, the outdoor pool was closed for, you know, and we have limited hours. We don't have enough employees. So it, it probably deserved to have a low result. Um, but I don't hold that against the quality, you know, we have work to do, but, so those, I think some of that's explainable, but, but overall, I was, I was very happy to see um, the strength in some of um, our areas, and I kind of appreciated you pointing out, um, and I, I had this perception, but I couldn't articulate it like you did, which is, you know, your streets and your tra traffic, and, you know, you're only going to get good grades on that if, if you're shrinking and no one's coming to your city. I mean, you know, I mean, you almost have to, you, you know, you, and, and without really overbuilding that. So that is areas that we have to continue to work on. So I don't take it lightly on one hand. On the other hand, um, you know, those are things that I'm not sure we'll ever be at the point where every one of our streets is in perfect condition. That's just not how the, the system works. Not at the same time. Um, and so... Um, so although something we have to work on, it's not overly concerning to me. So anyway, and again, I agree with the trends, and certainly I agree that I look forward to the oversampling and understanding that better. So thank you very much. It's usually one of the highlights. You know, it's been, I've been on the commission even before I was on commission. Getting to see these reports is always very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, any, other commission, any other commission comments? Vice Mayor, are you good? I'll be here. Good. All right, thank you very much. I'm you, so Lord. grateful. Yeah. Well done, you. To be back or have another discussion <laughs> with staff, and they can report back to you all. That'll be great. Thank you so much. It's a all pleasure. Right. I want what? What's wrong? I was just going to say, Craig, did you have anything you wanted to say about the results? Or, yeah. I mean, while this talks about our staff, I just wonder if you want to say anything. Oh, we we will we have been and we'll be pouring over it. Um, there's a lot that you can pull out of this, even in the, the basic survey. Um, and, you know, we look at the trends and there's, you know, it, it is, it's kind of a candy store for what gives us direction on where we should be prioritizing, not just budget resources, but uh, emphasizing in the ways that we can um, just better better engage the community. I mean, this is a great tool for us to um, reprogram the way we're doing business. So, thanks. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much. I want to make sure, uh, commissioners have been going on like this for since 5 o'clock. I want to make sure we don't need a break. Uh, 10 minute. Uh, let's do 7.25, please. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Ryan. We're ready, Mayor. Everything great?
Kurt? Let's return now to our October 18th, 2022 meeting. Our second agenda item, to consider and appeal a planning commission decision to deny a variance request from section 20-810E, the subdivision regulations. Who's up for me? I believe that's me, Mayor. Oh, CC Riley. Good evening, commissioners. CC Riley, Planner One with the Planning and Development Services Department. I have a brief presentation to share with you that just goes along with my staff report. Okay, so an appeal to the Planning Commission's decision to deny the variance request associated with a major subdivision at the Redemption Hill Church site at 802 West 22nd Terrace has been submitted. Ooh, one second. There we go. This variance request is seeking permission to depart from the, from the design standards of section 2810E of the subdivision regulations. This design standard requires local streets, which end at the boundary of a subdivision, to continue into the proposed subdivision to provide street connection or terminate in a cul-de-sac. The Planning Commission considered this item at their regular meeting in September and delivered a split vote four to four, which resulted in a denial of the variance. Section 2813F of the subdivision regulations state that a person aggrieved by the decision of the Planning Commission may appeal the decision to the City Commission. Such appeal shall be filed within 30 days of the date of the meeting of the Planning Commission at which the action item appealed from was taken. This timeline was met, thus the reason why this item is being considered by the City Commission today. To provide some history and context of the site, the preliminary plat was sought to combine four platted lots with the unplatted land, all of which is currently under the same ownership and parcel as one property located at 802 West 22nd Terrace and shown before you on the presentation outlined in blue. The subject property is zoned RS7, single dwelling residential district. The applicant has indicated that there is no change proposed in the existing land use, religious assembly, neighborhood institution. If approved, the applicant has indicated interest in expanding the existing church and or expanding the parking lot into this area, which is currently unplatted. However, these this proposal would be subject to site planning standards of the Land Development Code, and that proposal is not currently being reviewed by the preliminary plat or the associated variance being considered tonight. The proposed 2.08 acre lot satisfies the density and dimensional standards of the RS7 district. However, the site is located, as mentioned previously, at the termination of two streets, West 22nd Terrace and West 22nd Street. To give a brief history of the site, please see figure three and four on page four of the staff report, and before you on the presentation slide, which shows the 1960 and 1977 zoning map of the area. These maps indicate that when the area was originally platted in the 1960s, 22nd Terrace had always planned to be a dead end street. The light blue shows the approximate area of the subject property that we're talking about today. So you can see 22nd Terrace has always planned to be a dead end street. And sometime between the 1960s and 70s, 22nd Street was also shown as terminating at this site. 
per section 28810E2II of the Development Code, any existing or platted street that terminates at the boundary line of a proposed subdivision shall be continued into the proposed subdivision in such a manner as to provide street connection to adjoining lands and streets within the proposed subdivision. Or local streets may terminate in a cul-de-sac if an existing environmental feature dictates that design. If approved, the variance will be noted on the final plat. The engineer has determined that the existing environment does not require through street connection and the city engineer supports a variance from this section and has approved a method of alternative compliance through the addition of public access easements at the termination of both streets. This public access easement requires city commission acceptance at a later meeting and would be developed as part of the parking lot once the site plan is approved. The remaining variance criteria and staff analysis can be found in the staff report. Staff did receive public comment on this proposal. There was a formal letter in opposition of the variance submitted and included in your agenda packet. The opposition to this proposal has primarily been in regard to future development of the site and concerns regarding increased traffic. There has been no traffic study done at this stage. That component is generally included in the site planning stage. And to reiterate, um, there's been no site plan submitted at this time. And the site plan is not what's being considered by the commission. The applicant did, however, submit a concept plan included in your agenda packet and shown before you for the purpose of showing fire truck circulation. It should be noted that this concept has not been reviewed against the site planning standards of the land development code and is not an accurate depiction of what the site may look like as a result of this preliminary plat proposal. Impervious surface calculations, buffer yard requirements, and Article 9 of the Land Development Code will all be applicable to the site and will need to be reviewed against the site plan once it's submitted. Additionally, since the Planning Commission meeting, the applicant has provided an additional conceptual design of what cul-de-sacs may look like at the termination of both West 22nd Terrace and West 22nd Street. Again, this design has not been reviewed against the Land Development Code has not been reviewed by the city engineer or municipal services department for compliance. And if I may, I recommend the commission look to page 20 in their packet for their preliminary plat drawing, which is the only true plat representation of what staff has reviewed at this time and use that when considering the variance tonight. The subdivision regulations do not provide the option to add conditions or modifications when appeals of planning commission decisions are made to city commission. As a result, the city commission's ability are the same as those available to the planning commission, which are either to approve or deny the variance request. Approval would mean that the applicant has permission to depart from the design standards, which requires streets, which terminate at the boundary of a proposed subdivision, i.e. West 22nd Terrace and West 22nd Street, to be continued into the proposed subdivision or local streets may terminate in a cul-de-sac. Approval would retain existing conditions. If approved, following this meeting, the Planning Commission will be able to once more review the preliminary plat on their regularly scheduled November meeting, which was previously deferred at the September meeting. And if the Planning Commission finds that a proposed preliminary plat conforms to all of the criteria set forth in section 2809D, the Planning Commission shall approve the preliminary plat. The applicant would then work with staff to receive and review the second portion of the major subdivision process, the final plat. The final plat document will be reviewed administratively by staff and the planning director 
and then recorded with Douglas County Register of Deeds. Because there are easements proposed for dedication, the final plat will be considered by the City Commission for their acceptance of the access easement. After the final plat is recorded, then the applicant would have the opportunity to submit a site plan for any expansion of their building or expansion of their parking lot. The site plan would require a traffic study, stormwater drainage study, along with a detailed landscaping plan and lighting plan, to name a few required items in that application. Site plans are generally reviewed administratively, but they are also appealable to the City Commission. I bring this up to let the public know that there are multiple opportunities to engage in the development review of this property. Denial of the variance request would mean that the applicant does not have permission to depart from the design standards regarding the termination of streets. The applicant would be able to redesign the preliminary plat proposal in a way which does comply with the design standards, or they could redesign and seek out another variance from Planning Commission. The preliminary plat will not be approvable without meeting the design standards or having a variance approved. The undeveloped lot of the termination of both West 22nd Street and West 22nd Terrace is unplatted and without the approval of a preliminary plat will not be able to request building permits or otherwise be developed. <coughs> with that, I'll wrap up with staff's recommendation to approve the variance requested for the preliminary plat PP 2200248 from the requirement to have West 22nd Terrace and West 22nd Street continue into the proposed subdivision or terminate in a cul-de-sac as required per section 2810E2II of the Land Development Code for the property located at 802 West 22nd Terrace. Also of note, the Commission should disclose any ex parte communications that they might have had, if any, on this item, and I welcome any questions from the Commission. Um, are there any ex parte communications? I have no ex parte communications. Vice Mayor? None, none for me. Um, I had a very short call with Dean Grobe after the Planning Commission meeting. Um, he just um, asked about the process and we talked about that, but not the substance. This is Commissioner Sellers. I've had no ex parte communication. Uh, I've had none. Uh, all right, thank you for reminding us of that, CC at the beginning. Um, are there any other questions from commissioners for staff? at this time. This is Vice Mayor Larson. I have one question to start with. And what vote is needed in order to either pass or deny this? Is it a 3-2 vote, 4-1 vote? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. It's a 3-2 vote. This would take a majority of the City Commission. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Any other questions? Um, yeah, I just got a quick one. Uh, just looking at the, the and there, those cul-de-sacs are pretty big, and I'm just making trying to make sure that I'm seeing what I'm seeing. Especially on the north one, would it be dipping into the uh, right of way? Is that a residence to the north of them, or or uh, I'm not sure what building that is, but um, I just wanted to make sure. And that's probably for city staff or the developer. In the north is the school property. Okay. There's some tennis courts up there. And the cul-de-sac design is really meant to be a conceptual plan. It hasn't been reviewed by city staff or MSO staff. Um, the 
size of it has also not been reviewed against any of the standards. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, let's make sure uh, that was staff. I want to make sure uh, Mr. Grobe doesn't have some comments. Thank you. Good evening, Mayor, Commissioners. Uh, I'm Dean Grove with Grove Engineering. Um, I'm out, I'm here on behalf of Redemption Hill Church. Um, I prepared the plaid um, and uh, presented it at the Planning Commission, and, and I guess I didn't do an adequate job of, of convincing them of the hardship that lies in uh, with this project. Um, also, I've got uh, Steve Parkin, who is a pastor at the church, who will be happy to answer any questions. Um, uh, you know, after I'm done or before we're done, if you'd like to speak with him. So um, with this variance uh, and any variance that goes uh, to the Planning Commission from the um, subdivision regs uh, has a requirement um, that three things. That one, you show uh, undue, unnecessary hardship. Uh, two, that uh, it's in harmony with the intent of the subdivision regulations. And, and three, that there's no issue with public health and safety and that. Um, I, I think, um, you know, with staff reviewing everything, um, you know, the, the second and third item really hasn't come into play, but the question has been the uh, unnecessary hardship. And because I had staff's you know, recommendation, I didn't probably pound that home as much as I should as the Planning Commission, so here I am. Um, I think first and foremost, we have to look at, um, and, and if CC can put that drawing up that you uh, mentioned, uh, Commissioner Little, that the uh, amount of area that would just be taken up out of the property uh, would be about 18,000 square feet, um, almost a half an acre, because you know a lot of times when these projects are done, one side shares the giving of the right of way. You know, well here it's on no every, nobody else but the church, so uh, a very significant amount would be given up just by the right of way bulbs. Um, and once you have that right of way, then there's a 15 foot setback from anywhere adjacent to that right of way bulb. So there's more property that's being taken away that can be green space, but is no longer usable. Um, in addition, that. Um, uh, the north parking lot that you mentioned, um, again, uh, it has taken up the north parking lot. Uh, there are probably 25 stalls there that would have to go away if a cul-de-sac uh, is required up there. So. When we were working working with staff, it was like, well, how do we how do we solve the problems at hand? Um, and that's when we came up with a, a public access easement that is, in essence, a T hammerhead um, for fire and medical, uh, solid waste, any other uh, city transportation as well as the public that has a place to turn around and what that would mean is we couldn't put a gate up or anything at the property line with this plat. We'd have to provide that back around with the construction of the, the parking lot. So, um, you know, the whole taking of land I think is a significant um, hardship. Uh, Planning Commission doesn't 
like to address or doesn't believe that you know financial things should come into play. Um, one, you have the, the taking of the land and the square footage there. I did some quick calculations, or not even quick, but um, for a cul-de-sac, just the bulb and to tie, tie back in uh, the square footage at $12 a square foot, which probably anybody in the city MSO would agree that's a reasonable cost, puts a cost of about $88,000 on each cul-de-sac. Well, you add two up, and that's $178,000 that um, gets put in that probably most likely uh, kills the project because, uh, one, the cost, two, is taking parking. It's also taking parking that you can't provide, and when you net it out, it really doesn't become a viable solution. Um, and so that's why we're here. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, they've shown good faith with working with staff and different things and, and that, hey, problems can be solved. Uh, it's been this way, as, as uh, CeCe mentioned, 50 years or more that they haven't had a cul-de-sac and that um, the, the two streets, which are about a block long, um, you know, so the, the, the welfare and safety, I believe, is, is handled. And yes, there'll still be some strangers that go down that road that don't see the dead end sign. Uh, but that the cost compared to the benefit is, is pretty substantial. So and I, won't, I don't want to dwell into it too much. Uh, I do want to say the um, plan that you see had parking. Um, because as any church looks at expanding, well, the first thing is, is where's everybody going to park? Uh, and that kind of started the process because with the parking that they truly have just on site, on the north side, um, is 53 stalls, which at one stall per four parishioners, it's just 200 um, uh, people capacity in the sanctuary. Well, as... Um, CC mentioned with a uh, local neighborhood uh, religious facility, you can have up to 500. Uh, it's not their intent to, to grow to 500 tomorrow, but it's kind of a what if and how do we do this because um, they, they've been using the parking lot across the street, which does not belong to them, but they've been using it for quite some time. They've even stretched onto the Pizza Hut property. And also they've kind of made a policy not to fill up the neighborhood with vehicles on Sunday. Uh, there is some street parking, but you know, didn't want to be a bad neighbor and okay, here's where we're, we're gonna shove them down the street. So it's like a football game every Sunday. So I, I think it's important to, to look at all those factors and. And again, the hardship is, you know, when it becomes so overwhelming that you can't use your property um, and move forward and do an infill project in the community, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing. And, you know, if it came down to, well, we sell it, well, the next person that comes that might look at it saying, well, if I have to give up that kind of land right off the get-go, then the, the property isn't of much value to me as well. So uh, I think the hardship is there. I'll, I'll be happy to answer any other questions that you might have. Um, and I will say, my hearing aids are kind of acting up, so I'm sorry if I have to ask someone to repeat something. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Grobe. Um, any questions for Mr. Grobe at this time? I have a couple. Um, in the lot right next to the church, to the, I guess, east of it, are there people currently parking? I thought I heard something in the planning commission. Are there people currently parking there sometimes? 
you know, just because, you know, they, where else do you park that they have, um, there's kind of a grass area there. I mean, they're not physically trying to, right. you know, use it as parking, it's still just grass, but when they're, you know, when the uh, church is growing and thriving, that seems to be the first issue is, is, is parking. Okay. And then my second one was, and, and I don't know if you guys can answer this right now, and then I know the parking lot plan is down the road, and I understand that process. Um, a lot of the folks that, uh, you know, I just watched in the meeting that, you know, one of their points that they were concerned about was people using it as a pass-through. Um, I just wanted to ask you and your client if, it, you know, if, if there's an option to actually not make it one continuous parking lot to make it two so that it wouldn't be a pass-through um, and still have that ability for the engine to go ahead and go in and back out. Um, I think that would be, you know, a, a measure of good faith on your part to, you know, you try to eliminate that access for the neighborhood so that, you know, it wouldn't, people wouldn't use it to go around and go through. I understand. I, and I agree with you. And I've spoke with a couple of the neighbors just in, in passing. And I think the church would probably, uh, and, and I don't want to speak for Steve, but, you know, that um, they do have a lot of kids that just come up and, um, you know, it may be a gate or something such that for fire and medical or on Sundays, if you're kind of going one direction to not have to turn around and go out the other. But the last thing they want it to be is kind of a, a main cul-de-sac for them to just come up, cut through the parking lot and go back out. And, you know, have to believe that, you know, some might just if they pull in the church and they don't know they're where they're going to to pull on through. But, um, yeah, I'm up for okay. anything on the parking lot. It's, it was just a first cut at, you know, how, how many parking space might we get, you know, with the area we've got. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Mm -hmm. Vice Mayor? I have a couple of questions. So it seems to me that the, the, the it's my understanding that the cul-de-sacs are required when you're doing this type of a change in the property. This area doesn't have a lot of cul-de-sacs on the east side of town as a whole. So the cult, the idea of a cul-de-sac kind of seems a little bit um, odd for this area. So I was just wondering, um, is there anything you're doing besides just a cul-de-sac and a, and a pull through? Um, if I heard you correctly, you're questioning the cul-de-sac that um, I've done a couple hybrid cul-de-sacs, um, which are a little bit smaller. Uh, this was a standard cul-de-sac drawn on that drawing, but um, it, it might save a little bit. But with the setbacks and if it doesn't fit just right, um, it could possibly be smaller, but it's still going to take a significant piece of the property that it doesn't kind of eliminate or you can't kind of shove it down into one corner, um, you know, in order for to truly have a cul-de-sac. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Grove. Any other questions at this time? I might, is, go ahead, Vice Mayor. One more question for staff. Um, I think I've heard my question already. <laughs> uh, go, go ahead, Mayor. Go ahead, Mayor. Uh, yeah, I'll, let I'll me let me see. Is is Jeff available or I I, I know CC, but somebody who's in 
Bless you, dear. The <laughs> expert in uh, 2040, as we discussed previously, cul-de-sacs are actually being discouraged by Plan 2040, although we haven't really got it lined out yet. Um, could someone make a comment on that? Good evening, Commissioners. Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. Yes, Plan 2040 does make a comment about cul-de-sacs and design in general. It's typically related to developments that are incurring in greenfield or new new development style there are still going to be situations where cul-de-sacs are are prudent and necessary depending upon how existing streets are configured or the way that lots are done so it doesn't necessarily close the loop close the possibility for a cul-de-sac it just wants it to be limited and, and rethink how we do subdivision design in a larger area if that helps all right thank you that's helpful so and this is vice vice I'm please sorry. go ahead go ahead please <laughs> uh, yeah make sure i understand um, as far as what we're voting on tonight the variance it has nothing to do with the site plan that they're proposing as a parking lot is that correct that's totally separate that is correct it's just deciding if the variance should be approved yes or no regarding if they should leave existing conditions and allow for it to terminate in a dead end or require either a through or a cul-de-sac design. Okay. So if, if, if this variance were to pass and they built the parking lot, would they have to address stormwater runoff from that? They would, yes. It would be a required study whenever the site plan application comes in, in addition to traffic and other. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Let's go ahead and make sure there's no public comment on this item. Anyone in the room who wants to make public comment on this item? Is there anyone online who would like to make public comment on this item? Samuel Carter. Yes, uh, thank you. This is Samuel Carter. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. I'm a property owner. I live nearby the proposed subdivision. And um, I submitted comments before the Planning Commission uh, in protests and as before you as well, um, I'd like to just address uh, what appears to be a running misconception in the case. Let's keep in mind that the issue of the cul-de-sac is functioning right now is basically a red herring. You know, applicant is saying all these claims about how a cul-de-sac would be a hardship, what a burden it would be, but they're not just requesting a um, variance from the cul-de-sac regulation, we're also requesting a variance from the through street regulation. And I, I think this is important to note because if you, um, if it, when you look at that, uh, if you'll look at the uh, SEC, you wouldn't be able to pull up the, um, gosh, the uh, the cul-de-sac design, would you? Thank you. Okay. Yeah, if you look at the, and I, I, uh, thank you so much. I, I included it in my letter uh, sent, uh, sent earlier on page two of the letter, you'll see a couple excerpts of the, of the cul-de-sac design. But if you look at the um, the southern end, for instance, uh, at least to me, there seems to be no reason why a through street could simply not continue onto that. Um, so, so that kind of goes to show that um, uh, there's not they haven't necessarily just in terms of due diligence considered complying with the regulations. Um, so, and I want I want to I would like to just remind the commission that there's a really high bar for um, unnecessary hardship. You know, unnecessary hardship part of the definition. Uh, is that it's impossible to use the property for conforming use, you know? And I think uh, applicants uh, engineered, you know, uh, attested that, you know, they wouldn't be able to use the property. Well, they can still use the property, just not as um, 
not as many parking spots, but that's still a, a use as of the property for conforming use. So again, I, I think the issue, um, you know, they've uh, they've objected to the cult, the cul-de-sac, and they've you know put some numbers forward about why it may be a, a hardship to install install cul-de-sacs. But um, we haven't seen anything about how uh, how this would be an unnecessary hardship under city code. I think that's why a lot of the planning commissioners uh, voted against it. I mean, I um, it's not, and I think it's really easy for you to vote against it today because uh, unnecessary hardship is a really high, it's a uh, very high bar. Um, mere, you know, mere financial loss or uh, does not constitute um, unnecessary hardship. Um, so um, yeah, that's, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons to reject the variance and some of those uh, I've outlined in, uh, um, in the, uh, the letters, um, you know, it doesn't comply with plan 2040 for livable walkable neighborhoods. The neighborhood itself is already really hot. Adding a whole parking lot to it isn't going to help. Um, so I, I encourage you to consider uh, what I've said, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Any further public comment online? No, Mayor. All right, let's bring it back to the commission. Uh, any further questions or discussion? You know, I, I guess I would start. I mean, I do think the, you know, the the question, the couple questions, you know, that we're considering. You know, one is the undue hardship. And it is a it is a high ball, and it is, um, you know, I know there is um, case law and others that talk about, you know, it's not the cost that can be considered. However, I think the difference here is that. It's the taking of the land that can be considered. That is not, um, it's not the cost of, of building the cul-de-sac, it's the, it's the dedication of land. And that is, um, is to me, a, is the undue hardship. And as the staff found, the other part of that is, you know, the question of what are you comparing it against? And as it said, I'm looking at the staff report, you know, given that, um, both the streets have been developed in this pattern for decades, you know, from since from the 1960s, and that street was never supposed to go through and never had a um, cul-de-sac to begin with. The hardship imposed upon the subdivider is unnecessary. So I agree with the staff finding on that. You know, as well, you know, again, the variance harmony with the intended purpose, you know, um, again, the question is, are, are we creating a variance from where we're at. And again, the staff finding is we're actually keeping the exact same street pattern as it has been since the 1960s. So really doing something different would be the variance. Um, so I agree with the staff on that as well as the public health and safety. So, um, you know, I do think I'm not a fan of cul-de-sacs. I'm not a fan of big turnarounds. Um, I've had some disagreements in the past with the fire department and how much concrete they need and how much turnaround they need um, and you know I think some of those are unnecessary and uh, so and I think by the way this is another item we can look at when we look at the new development code um, and how cul-de-sacs are treated you know as we implement that so for all those reasons I'll, I'll support the uh, variance request. Can I poke you a little bit more? Sure. I don't disagree on any particular thing. I just wondered if you could help me flesh out the pass-through element of this, that 
it was never supposed to go all the way through. Um, or and and the commenter that said, well, it could go all the way through. As I see it, I I don't see a reason for it. To, I mean, I I would have we could have vacated this a long time ago. In my in my mind, what what are your? Could you flesh that out a little bit more for me? Yeah, yeah, I guess the idea that I mean, it's not going to go all the way through to connect to anything else. Right, right. So you'd just be um, going further down. Um, and that, I guess, again, the traffic pattern has always ended at that lot, so. I don't, um, and I, I also don't know that if it did go all the way through, that would benefit the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean. That would create. True, traffic. I'm not sure they would. Yeah, it would create um, traffic that doesn't exist or, um, yeah. um, you know, an exit to, I think this is, a, that would be a collector or near a collector, yeah. maybe wrong. And, and and frankly, having kind of a street that ends a public, they were talking about teenagers or something, you give teenagers a public road that they can go sit on, you know, that's not even private property, that if you just extended that public road that had no connection except um, to the, I mean, I don't know that that helps anybody. So I guess that's my thought on that. Uh, any other comments or discussion? Uh, oh, so go, go ahead, Vice Mayor. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, um, this seems like a situation where the code is, um, I don't know if it's outdated or it just it needs to be evaluated like um, Commissioner Finkel and I have talked about. I think this is a good good example of why we're redoing our code because uh, this situation, a similar one came up a few years ago on the East 19th Street project where the city uh, had proposed to design a street that was standard, you know, what is considered standard for the city. And in that situation, I think this is a similar situation. It's, it's, a, it's not a one size uh, fits all. And this is a situation I think is perfect for, um, you know, taking a different look at it and not having the, having the um, cul-de-sac idea um, um, be required for every single situation in the city. This is an older part of the city. Um, cul-de-sacs aren't usual at all. So, so I would um, uh, propose. I would um, uh, support this this variance because I do think that they come up with a, a good idea on how to get around it. And I just think this is a situation where one size is not fit all, and because cul-de-sacs aren't the answer all the time. Commissioner, go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's I agree with Vice Mayor Larson and um, Commissioner Finkel die that this is a great point to bring up at the land development code um, uh, meetings. And uh, one thing to, you know, extrapolate uh, on why, why, why this is present here, um, because it I'm not sure if it really helps the neighborhood there. Um, but I, and, and I'm also I would lean towards supporting it because going forward if they do, do decide to pursue a parking lot there will be a traffic study there will be a stormwater management study and there'll be opportunity for comment during those phases of it so if they decide to go ahead and pursue those opportunities and um i, I think um also that the pass-through element would also be discussed as well so um for that i would be supporting it Thank you, Commissioner. You have anything else? Ready for the motion? Yeah. Oh, well, actually, I, you, let me just, Randy, um, it's not in the three items here that we generally would look at under this situation, hardship, harmony with the codes, health and safety, safety but, but 
um, having been on the Board of Zoning Appeals in the past, I, I saw uniqueness here, which I think other people have said in different ways. I feel like the Vice Mayor said this, and uh, Commissioner Littlejohn kind of said that there's um, um, a need for a certain kind of flexibility in, in unique situations, and this one seems like that. Uh, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Uh, you need to consider the unnecessary hardship, and you also need to consider uh, the proposed variance and whether it's in harmony with the remainder of the code and then public health and safety and welfare. Under uh, the under the development code, the definition of unnecessary hardship is the condition results in the application when viewing the property in its environment that it is so unreasonable as to become an arbitrary and capricious interference with the basic right of private property ownership or convincing proof exists that it is impossible to use the property for conforming use or sufficient factors exist to constitute a hardship that would in effect deprive the owner of the property without compensation. Mere financial loss or the loss of a potential financial advantage does not constitute unnecessary hardship. So that's the definition of unnecessary hardship in this situation. It's slightly different than what was applied in the BZA regarding setbacks and other things like that. So that, that's what you should be considering in this particular case. Thank you for clarifying that, Randy. I appreciate it. Um, with that, I would uh, entertain motions. I move to approve the variance request for the preliminary plat PP-22-00248 from the requirement to have West 22nd Terrace and West 22nd Street continue into the proposed subdivision or terminate into a cul-de-sac as required per section 20 810E2II of the Land Development Code for the property located at 802 West 22nd Terrace. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Vice Mayor? She froze. Did you freeze? <laughs> I said aye. Aye. Okay. Thank you, Vice Mayor. That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Yes, I gotcha. Uh, thank you, Mr. Court. Thank you, Cece and staff. I appreciate your time. Uh, that brings us to item number three, consider adopting ordinance 9878 and ordinance 9946, establishing various new provisions regarding tobacco use and licensing within the city of Lawrence. Good evening, uh, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Assistant City Attorney Maria Garcia, and I am here to walk you all through two ordinances that are before you tonight related to vaping and tobacco. I have a brief PowerPoint presentation to show to help guide this presentation, so I'll just go ahead and share screen. So, uh, just as a roadmap to show the agenda or the talking points for this presentation, um, I'd first like to review the city commission direction to staff, um, how this item came about, why we're having this conversation. The second item is to review key provisions from the draft ordinance number 9878. That one is related to vaping and have a you know specific discussion or point out to you all the penalty provision um, and whether to strike a certain language in that section or subsection. And then the third and final item is to review key provisions from the draft ordinance number 9946 related to licensing and tobacco 21, which is T21 for short, as I'll use in the presentation. So on uh, number one, 
Live Well Douglas County um, provided presentations uh, to the City Commission during their uh, in September of 2021 and February of 2022. And at the end of the February meeting, um, it was clarified for staff that staff was directed to return to the Commission with a package, so to speak, addressing a number of items raised in the presentations. Uh, those items for staff to consider were number one, adding vaping as a prohibited act to the city code. Number two, uh, staff was tasked with uh, providing a recommendation on enforcement for that. Three, adding a provision for Tobacco 21, prohibiting the sale of tobacco products to persons under the age of 21. The fourth item uh, was to consider a tobacco retail licensing scheme. Number five is to provide an analysis of the impact implementation of any such ordinances would have on staff. And finally, uh, the commission asked staff to look into and provide an opinion on the applicability of hookah e hookah and whether it should be a prohibited act under the new language in the ordinances. And so first I'll start with kind of an overview of the key provisions of the first ordinance before you, which has to do with vaping. This ordinance essentially makes two large changes to or two significant changes to the definition section. The first change to definition is to create one um, and it's creating a definition for electronic smoking device. Uh, the second change, which I'll get to, is updating the definition of smoking um, to include vaping. And so when we're looking at this ordinance as a whole, if these changes are adopted, then smoking would mean or include vaping, and that would be a prohibited act under the code. So the first definition change is for electronic smoking device, and that is defined as an electronic or battery operated device that may be used to deliver any aerosolized or vaporized substance to the person inhaling from the device, including an electronic cigarette, electronic cigar, electronic pipe, electronic hookah, or a vape pen. And this would include any component part, part or accessory of any such device. There is um, an exception provided at the very end of that definition. It does not include drugs, devices, or combination products authorized for sale by the FDA. And that includes instruments or machines that are intended to, um, for example, affect the structure of any function of the human body or instruments or machines that are used for the diagnosis or treatment of disease. So in the event that there is a machine, for example, that use it is electronic or battery operated that diagnoses or treats disease um, and has been approved by the FDA, that does not count as an electronic smoking device for purposes of this ordinance. The second definition uh, change here is to update the definition of smoking to include such electronic smoking device. And there was one other change made to the definition of smoking, and that is to add the word hookah into it, um, as well as adding the terms natural or synthetic when describing burning vegetation. Um, otherwise, this definition remains the same. Uh, the fact that hookah would be called out specifically in this definition doesn't necessarily um, preclude hookah businesses from operating necessarily. Um, if they meet the definition of a tobacco shop under our existing code, then the provisions for the smoking ban uh, would not apply to them. And a tobacco shop, shop, as you know, means a retail store operated primarily for the sale of tobacco, tobacco products, and smoking devices, and which derives at least 65% of its gross receipts from the sale of tobacco. So as long, again, as, as those businesses meet the definition of a tobacco shop, then they uh, would, would um, not be affected by this definitions change. 
As for enforcement of the ordinance, the fire chief or his or her designated agent continues to be responsible for enforcing the article. And uh, the Lawrence Police Department is removed in this draft ordinance as a department tasked with inspections for compliance and is replaced instead with the Lawrence Douglas County Public Health Department. <clears throat> so this is a discussion point for the commission um, and it is section 9-812 related to violations and penalties. This section was uh, first adopted in 2004 and then amended again in 2010. So it has been um, in our city code for over a decade now. And it penalizes two different types of people for violation um, under the current city code. The first type of person um, is someone who owns, manages, or operates, or otherwise controls a public place um, who fails to comply with the provisions of this smoking ban, um, the article's provisions, including allowing someone to smoke where prohibited by law. So you have someone who owns a, a public place and they allow someone to come in and smoke in that establishment, they could be charged with violating um, this article. The second person who could be penalized under the current language is the actual user. In subsection C, there's language that states it shall be unlawful for any person to smoke in any area where smoking is prohibited by the provisions of this article. And I point this out to you because there is a request in the model policy provided by LiveWell to remove that subsection C for violations by the user um, to help alleviate inequities between an addicted user and a retailer who profits off of that addiction. Um, and I'll uh, obviously let them explain that more. I believe that someone is here to provide you know, some additional insight onto that. So um, of course it would be lawful for the commission to remove that subsection, but you know, staff determined that that's really a policy decision that should be made by the city commission. That would be a significant change and we wanted to leave that up for your consideration. Um, but I will note that the purpose of having that subsection in the first place is really to protect third parties. Um, the language doesn't prohibit people who are addicted to cigarettes, for example, from smoking at all. It prohibits them from smoking in areas where other people are visiting the establishment um, to, again, like I said, protect those third parties from having to inhale the secondhand smoke. Okay, moving on to the second ordinance, which is 9946, that um, establishes a licensing scheme and a Tobacco 21 rule for the city of Lawrence. So this uh, draft ordinance establishes a new Article 8A. Um, it repeals an existing Article 8A, which uh, prohibits the sale of tobacco products to people under the age of 18. That would be completely repealed and replaced with this new language in the ordinance. It would take effect if adopted um, January 2023, and that date was requested specifically by the by public health just to give it a few months um, to prepare for the licensing scheme should it be adopted tonight to kind of get everything in order for that. This ordinance would establish two licenses that would be required in the city of Lawrence. One would be a license required of tobacco retailers and also anyone operating a self-service display. Um, an example of that would be a vending machine, for example, that sells tobacco products. And um, staff looked and analyzed the model policy that was provided um, and appreciates the input by LiveWell, Heart Association, um, the you know public health department, 
uh, in answering our questions and helping us sort through it. But the language is not identical to the model policy. That's because staff wanted to make it consistent with other licensing language in the city code to kind of follow the same sort of um, language that is already established. But I do want to point out that one major departure from other licensing schemes in our city code is that this application process, the licensing would be handled entirely by Lawrence Douglas County Public Health, not our city clerk's office like we do with the great majority of other licenses here in the city. Uh, Lawrence Douglas County Public Health is defined in the draft ordinance as uh, re designated representatives of the Lawrence Douglas County Public Health Department's environmental health program area and those people are vested with the power to enforce the provisions of this new article and issue citations or notices to appear for violations thereof. Um, it is not uncommon or unusual for the health department to be tasked with helping to enforce certain provisions under our city code. This licensing scheme is much more comprehensive than anything we have for the health department in our city code, but I did want to point out the health department does help with other things. So for example, under chapter five, there is an article that establishes licensing and inspections for pools and spas. The health department under our city code establishes fees and standards for operations of those pools and spas. They uh, license about, um, according to the health department, about 100 pools per year, and they conduct frequent inspections to ensure compliance with the city code. Another example of where the health um, officer of the health department is tasked with helping out um, with enforcement is under chapter nine, article one, and that article is related to a variety of public health and sanitation laws like um, dumping sewage in certain places and pollution of streams. And it specifically references the health officer, which is defined as the director of public health. And that person is tasked with enforcing the article. So when the health department issues a license um, or uh, denies it, revokes it, suspends it, uh, any person that's aggrieved by such decision can appeal the decision to the director of public health. The um, group of people within the health or public health that are making decisions for licensing um, are within a specific division, but the appeals would go to the director for consideration. There is a cost for the licensing um, under the proposed ordinance uh, language, the tobacco retailer cost would be $260 per year and a self-service display would, uh, license would be $15 per year. Uh, I wanted to note that state law does require tobacco retailers and self-service display operators to obtain a state license, but very importantly, there's no language in that state law that preempts local um, governments, municipalities from establishing local licensing schemes and having tobacco retail licenses on a local level. And in fact, there are other cities in Kansas that do, do license on a local level, and that includes Wichita and Newton, for example. The enforcement of this new um, licensing law would include um, two unannounced compliance checks per year um, public health would engage persons between the ages of 18 and 20 to attempt to purchase tobacco products. There would be follow-up compliance checks if a retailer is found to be non-compliant. And finally, the results of any such compliance checks would be compiled and provided to the public. And then finally, this draft ordinance creates a local Tobacco 21 law. 
Um, there is language in there that states it shall be unlawful for any tobacco retailer, either directly or indirectly through agents, employees, or other means to sell or distribute tobacco products to persons under 21 years of age. There are other Kansas cities, particularly um, on this side of the state in the Kansas City area, as well as Douglas County um, several years ago that had adopted a T21 law. Um, notably, there is a federal T21 law that was enacted um, in late 2019. Uh, Article 12, Section 5 of our Kansas Constitution empowers local governments with home rule power to determine uh, local affairs. Uh, the state minimum age for the sale of tobacco is 18, but our Kansas Supreme Court held in 2019 that a tobacco, or I'm sorry, that a Topeka T21 law was a valid exercise of the home rule authority in the absence of preemption or a conflict with state law. And so essentially our Kansas Supreme Court upheld a Topeka law that was similar that said tobacco products could not be sell, sold to persons under the age of T21, which really added some clarity um, and several other cities followed suit and created their local laws in response. So in conclusion, these two ordinances include a majority of the requests that were made in the model policies, um, with the exception of that one penalty provision in the vaping ordinance that we would just ask for discussion and direction from the commission on. Um, otherwise, additional information and comment um, is anticipated to be provided by Lawrence Douglas County Public Health and representatives from the American Heart Association. I am happy to answer or try to answer any questions now or I can um, pass it along for any comment from interested advocates, anyone interested thank, in ordinance. Thank you so much, Maria. Sure. Let's see if any, there are any questions for you and then, and then we'll move on to maybe the health department. Any questions for Maria at this time? Commissioners, not seeing any. Um, is there someone here from the health department who's uh, wanting to speak? Good evening, I'm Vicki Colley-Akers. I'm Interim Director of Policy and Planning at Lawrence Douglas County Public Health, and we'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have about the policy. I will just note that our interest in these particular policies that are elevated this evening are driven by the persistent and ongoing challenge of tobacco use in Lawrence. Despite significant wins, such as Lawrence's leadership in advancing clean air, indoor, indoor air as the first in the state, as well as the efforts of our team and our partners to advance cessation and education, tobacco use is still a problem. As a governmental public health agency whose jurisdiction includes Lawrence, we regard public policy as an important tool for protecting and promoting the health of people living in our community. And our analysis of these two policies in, uh, that are under consideration is that they offer enormous direct and indirect benefit to the youth and adults in our community. Our application of internal health equity impact assessments reviews suggest these policies limit un un unintended consequences, which would exacerbate disparities and are responsive to data demonstrating the ongoing challenges around tobacco use. Our community health and environmental health teams have reviewed the policies and note that the body, our body of experience supporting education of community stakeholders and implementing other regulatory and licensing procedures will contribute to successful implementation of these policies. We're happy to answer any questions that you might have about these policies, the potential benefits to the public's health and well-being, and our health department's ability to successfully implement the licensing procedures outlined in the tobacco retail licensing policy. 
Thank you. Thank you. Any particular questions? Don't go away. I might have one later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, Maria Garcia, who else did you think might need to speak or might like to speak? Terry Brinker from the American Heart Association is here. Okay. Hi there. Oh, Terry Brinker. Oh, yeah, I'm virtual tonight. Um, American Heart Association. Um, I'm here just to serve as a resource, having worked with local advocates throughout the process to answer any questions that you may have. Um, we do have my colleague, um, Misty, is present to give our formal remarks. Um, there at City Hall right now. So I'd just like to, to punt it to her if I could. Thank you, Karin. Hello, thank you. Um, I'll take my mask off. There we go. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mayor Shipley and members of the commission. I am Misty Slater. I am uh, with American Heart Association and I am here regarding the tobacco retail licensure and the vaping ordinance. I have supported this, uh, this concerted effort um, with Livewell Douglas County, with the um, Lawrence NAACP and more than a dozen other organizations who have been working on this for quite some time. Um, local advocates with the health department began discussing this back in 2018 um, and joined 25 other Kansas communities raging, raising the age for tobacco sales to 21. We are happy to see that T21 is included in this ordinance alongside the retail licensure and vaping language. Um, commercial tobacco use does remain the leading cause of preventable disease and death, including cardiovascular disease. Um, and according to the CDC, commercial tobacco use cost the United States more than $600 billion in 2018. That includes healthcare spending and lost productivity. So the AHA applauds the culmination of all of these local efforts and outreach. Um, and we are so thankful for the diligence of the city staff, um, as well as the commission, especially commissioners uh, Finkeldice, city staff Craig Owens, and Commissioner Sellers, who have supported all of these local advocates in navigating through this process, as well as all of you who have met with advocates and staff. Um, our key reasons for supporting this um, include ensuring that the retailer compliance and accountability is there to eliminate youth tobacco sales. That's truly the main purpose of this. It also removes the penalties for youth commercial tobacco possession, um, potentially even removing any unnecessary point of police interaction related to youth tobacco possession. Um, it also reduces the harm of targeted commercial tobacco marketing to groups that carry a disproportionate rate of tobacco-related disease burdens. That includes race and ethnicity, that includes LGBTQIA+, um, and low socioeconomic status um, residents of Lawrence and Douglas County. Um, in closing, we respectfully urge you to support this ordinance, and I am happy to stand prepared for any questions, concerns, or even any policy questions related to the language as I helped work with Maria, and I thank Maria for all of her time and partnership in helping get this passed. Thank you. All right. Any any other questions, Misty? Just real quick. Just um, I know we had directed staff, and we had previous discussion with the commission in regards to 
the language around hookah and e-hookah. Based on work model work that has been done in other communities and how they've navigated their TRL and Tobacco 21, how have they navigated the discussion around hookah and e-hookah? Because I see them as two separate, but that's my interpretation of it. I'd just be curious to know your, how um, you've navigated it so, or saw how that Yes, absolutely. Youth are particularly um, susceptible to using and being marketed hookah and e-hookah products. And so we worked very closely with some public health legal experts in developing the model language that was given to Maria. And this model language was actually based upon just decades of experience of lawyers working with communities all across the country, kind of learning some lessons learned and continuing to refine the language. So this is actually actually based upon the most current best practices that many communities use all across the country, um, including here in the Midwest. Any other questions? I don't know if we have anybody here from LiveWell. I'd be curious to know their, the rationale for the rationale on subsection C in section 9-812 and why they wanted that language removed. Live well, do we have anyone? Is that the, the penalty, the yeah. use penalty language? Yeah. That was mostly about equity. So we, um, in working with the model language, and I'm also happy to, to let others weigh in, but that was, that was truly about equitable penalties. So people who are addicted to tobacco, we know nationally the rates of the, the folks who are addicted to tobacco tend to make less money. They tend to have lower education rates. So financial penalties will actually disproportionately burden them more than others. So that's why we want to put all penalties on the folks who actually stand to make the most money off of tobacco versus those who are addicted, that a financial penalty can really put them behind and really mean that they might not be able to afford groceries or gas next month. So that's that was the reason behind the model language ordinance. Um, however, I would be happy to defer to um, others in the room if they had if they had a differing opinion. Getting a positive response there. Anything else? No. More discussion, but okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait till the appropriate time. All right. Uh, let's be sure there's no public comment in the room. Oh, Christina. Sorry. <laughs> Evening, Commission. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, my name is Christina Haswood. I wanted to speak on. Um, my support of the exemption for indigenous cultural practices. Um, when we're moving forward with uh, these types of tobacco legislation, sometimes um, it could be an unintended consequence to not have specifically an exemption for indigenous cultural tobacco usage, um, and especially with the urban population that we have here in Haskell Nations University. Um, tobacco is often given as a gift and often given um, back for prayer as well. So it can be um, more casually in that manner used uh, for cultural practices. Um, and just wanted to say my support in that just because um, something like this might be seeming like common sense, but little do we know that um, you know, it wasn't too long ago uh, that the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed in 1978, which was 44 years ago. So before that, it was actually illegal for us to utilize tobacco in our cultural use. So just wanted to um, 
sing the praises of thank you, and I support this ordinance. Thank you. Thank you, Representative. Good evening. My name is Ursula Miner. I'm president of the Lawrence Branch NAACP. To save lives, especially black and brown lives, local tobacco prevention control partners and lawmakers must address where how existing tobacco laws contribute to systemic racism and discrimination. Research so research research shows that there are no that are that there are more tobacco retailers in low-income and black neighborhoods compared to other neighborhoods. African-American people are more likely to die from smoking-related illnesses. Tobacco use contributes to the three leading causes of death among African-Americans, heart disease, cancer, and stroke. The Lawrence Tobacco Retail License will help create a local solution to reduce teen tobacco access and use and protect them from a lifelong addiction. It will work to prevent systemic racism and commercial tobacco reinforcement. Nearly 95% of smokers first tried tobacco products by age 21. The developing teenage brain is particularly vulnerable to addictive effects of nicotine. Nicotine addiction will cause about three out of 14 smokers to continue smoking into adulthood. Addressing the health disparities seen among black and low-income neighborhoods means changing the systems that discriminatory target these communities. Limitations on where tobacco retailers can sell is one way to disrupt the systems that perpetuate these predatory practices. Increase access to health care, reducing health disparities, and limiting chronic disease are top priorities for the NAACP as we continue to support programs and policies that will improve positive health outcomes within black communities. We believe the tobacco retail license will not only help Lawrence's black residents, but help all Lawrence residents. We encourage your thoughtfulness in considering this policy with strong components for public health. Your leadership on this important effort to improve the health and equity of life for all in Lawrence is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Further public comment in the room? Hi, this is Chris Flowers. Um, first off, I'd just like to say, if we can take this approach to tobacco enforcement, why can't we do the same for alcohol? Um, also, will underage smokers be targeted at all when we're cracking down on fake IDs for underage drinking? Um, also, when it comes to what's considered a smoke shop, um, does Delta 8 count towards tobacco count? Um, it should if, if smokable Delta 8 is being lumped in with tobacco on like where we can't, can and can't smoke it. Um, has anyone directly reached out to those aged 18 to 20? I work with some. Ever since this came up years ago, I've asked those under 21 what they think. And I think just about everyone, I can't remember anyone who's not said that 18 should be the age that you're allowed to smoke. Um, the, the city could reach out right now by reaching out to like the dorms at KU and Haskell, see if they'll let you put in a survey or a comment box, like what are, what's your opinion about 
raising the age to 21. And I think the city doesn't want to because I think that the response is going to be from those 18, aged 18 to 20, we want the age to be 18. Um, here, and here's something I think is kind of bullshit. Um, this past summer, um, women's health and lives were on the line with that abortion question on the ballot. If 18-year-olds are too immature to decide if they can smoke a cigarette, why should they be allowed to vote when others' lives are on the line? Not only did they vote, but I'm guessing a lot of people in this room were rooting for those 18 to 20-year-olds to show up to the polls. Well, they did. And how do you reward them? By telling them they're too immature to make a decision about tobacco. Um, also, I, there was mention about how much we spend on smokers' health. I think that's a bit, bit misleading, because if they don't die of lung cancer, does that mean in the end they're going to die for something that has no cost? I mean, will living to 90 and spending their final years in a nursing home not cost anything? Um, I, I, I think we should do more help for addiction, not just for tobacco, but drugs in general. And I, I am going to end on this. I say fuck to all the just, fuck you to all the just say no, Nancy, Reagan, Karen's trying to keep others from having a good time. End the drug war, not expand it. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment in the room? Um, public comment online, I hope. Monica Dittmer is still available. Monica Dittmer? Oh, yeah, I'm still here. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So, yes, my name is Monica Dittmer, um, representing Boys and Girls School of Lawrence. Uh, the Boys and Girls School of Lawrence supports a tobacco-free community because one of the club's long-term goals is healthy futures for healthy youth. Um, I thought it might be helpful to provide some anecdotal examples um, of the dangers and prevalence of youth tobacco use in our very own community. First, I just want to start with some overall statistics on youth tobacco use, which nowadays usually means vaping. But more than one in four Kansas high school students report using at least one of the following tobacco products, cigarettes, e-cigarettes, cigars, or smokeless tobacco one in four. Almost half of Kansas high school students report having tried e-cigarettes with 22% of them currently using e-cigarettes. Those stats are from KDHE. And in the Kansas Communities That Care survey in 2020, almost 16% of youth right here in Douglas County said it would be very easy to gain access to vaping products. This is about 3% higher than the state average. Now I'd like to give some examples in our own community. The Boys and Girls Club of Lawrence serves more than 300 teens per year. According to the stats I mentioned, that means that about 75 of them are currently regularly using tobacco products. That stat is evidenced by the fact that I can pull open my desk drawer right here and find several vape pens that our staff have confiscated on our during our programs. I've seen videos of teens that are proud to show off their sneaky vape skills. Uh, maybe y'all have heard about the, the social media accounts that went viral with kids standing literally directly behind teachers in classrooms to try to vape and get away with it. Not to mention that some of that um, vaping devices look so disguised as other items. Teachers are often ignorant to the fact that paraphernalia exists even in classrooms. 
I know that some high school students that refer to the gender neutral single use restrooms as the vaping rooms. These examples are not just things that happen in the big city. We're seeing these trends right here in our programs. Thank you for allowing me to share some information as you consider tobacco prevention in our community. Chris Thank Tilden. Thank you, Mayor, Commissioners. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to, speak to this issue. Um, with all due respect to Mr. Flowers, you know, we do license uh, the sale of many products, including uh, the sale of alcohol. Uh, we also have age restrictions on sales of alcohol, um, rental of automobiles. Uh, there, there are a lot of ages, uh, age restrictions in place for a variety of, of products and tobacco is one of those products on the market that we know is um, it is is perhaps more dangerous than any. Um, I want to speak to the fact that you know I at one point worked with Monica as they developed a resist chapter and members of that chapter, youth from Lawrence appeared before the commission. I have lost track of how many years ago uh, to talk about the need for um, for regulation like this. Um, in part because of their concern about the ease with which their colleagues were able to acquire these products and also the clear lack of information about the harm of particularly electronic cigarettes uh, relative to tobacco. I actually had the privilege of uh, being part of focus groups done with area youth uh, along with faculty from the School of Journalism at KU. Um, and those were consistent with findings we had in the focus groups with those individuals. Um, they expressed um, to us how easy it was for they and colleagues to acquire um, cigarettes and other tobacco products um, and shared that they felt that, um, that, you know, the, the, that their friends and, and colleagues really felt like there was little danger uh, from the use of electronic cigarettes. I would like to close by thanking uh, the staff for uh, putting together uh, the, the, the ordinances that they have prepared, the health department uh, for their willingness to uh, be part of that enforcement process, um, American Heart Association, Livewell, and others for the work that they've done. I, I am part of the Livewell Coalition, but wasn't involved in kind of the day-to-day the -day development of the, the model ordinance, uh, which I think um, has in large part been adopted uh, by the city as they've developed these proposed ordinances. So, and so thank everyone, um, including the commission for, for hearing this important issue tonight. Thanks. Um, I'm sorry, there's not a first name, um, but the guest name listed is Kuntz. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Gavin Kuntz, and I am an eighth grader in Lawrence. I'm here to ask for your vote and support for tobacco retail license and clean indoor air ordinances. 
Voting in support of these policies will help to make it more difficult for youth to purchase tobacco products in our city and will help to protect the health of our community. These policies are important because tobacco kills more than half a million Americans annually. That is more than AIDS, alcohol, illegal drugs, murders, and suicides combined. Tobacco also impacts quality of life and reduces life expectancy by 10 years for smokers. A study found that the two main ingredients in vape liquid, propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin, are toxic to our lungs. So it's not just the nicotine that can harm us. Other ingredients added to cigarettes include arsenic, which is found in rat poisoning, and uh, acetone, which is found in nail polish remover, and formaldehyde, which is used in embalming fluid. These are not products I would put in my body, and they are not products I want in the air I breathe. At my age, I don't see a lot of vaping and smoking, but statistics show it will be much more common when I enter high school next year. Adopting these policies will make it much harder for teens to access vaping devices and tobacco products. So hopefully I won't be exposed to these products much in the future. Thank you. Dr. Greg Nickel. Oh, is there Yeah, there are Thank you. My name is Greg Nickel. I'm a family physician and I've worked at Watkins Health Services Clinic on the KU campus for 10 years. And for the last year, I've served as the medical director for our clinic. And I want to briefly give you um, my perspective. Our clinic provides walk-in clinic visits and scheduled visits for KU students. We see thousands of students in our clinic every month. Last month, more than half of our visits were with students under the age of 21. Our clinic protocol is to ask our patients at every visit if they use tobacco products. This includes the use of e-cigarettes. We have a staff of 12 medical providers made up of physicians and nurse practitioners. We know that use of tobacco products is high among the students that we serve. In preparation to provide comments tonight, I asked our medical staff to estimate the percent of patients they see in our clinic that use tobacco products. Their estimates range from 30% of patients seen by one provider to as high as 80% of patients seen by another provider. Our collective observation is that tobacco use contributes to numerous cases of students performing poorly academically, and we've seen tobacco use lead to other medical concerns. We don't see tobacco use as being positive for the typical KU student's academic success, especially the younger student. So as a healthcare provider working with KU students, I'm personally in favor of community efforts that will help to control and limit the use of tobacco products by individuals under the age of 21. Thank you for your time. Gav, um, Gavin Koontz. Hello, commissioners. My name is Grayson Koontz and I'm an eighth grader in the <laughs> I'm here to ask for your support for a tobacco retail license in clean indoor air policy for our city. These policies will protect the health of our community and especially the young people like me. These policies will make it harder yeah. for anyone under yes. 21 to purchase cigarettes and vapes. Please. It is important to make these products harder to get because we know that 95% of adult smokers started before the age of 21. One of the reasons for starting so young is the marketing from tobacco companies. Tobacco companies put flavoring into their products to make it taste more appealing. They use candy flavoring and fruit flavoring to get kids interested in the products and make it seem harmless at a young age. 
These items can go safely into my body and are things that I like. Tobacco companies know that and are using them to make a product taste more appealing, even though their tobacco products cause harm to my health. Studies show that the average age Douglas County youth first tried a vape product is at 14 years old. Right now, I'm 13. If you adopt the tobacco retail license, you will make it harder for the youth to get these products unless kids will try these products. For these and so many additional reasons, I hope you will vote for these policies to keep kids safe. Thank you. Megan Bolter. Hi, my name is Megan Bolter. I'm with the Preventing Tobacco Addiction Foundation. I'm a public health law attorney and I work across the nation in localities to develop comprehensive tobacco retail licensing and T21 policy. Um, I've had the privilege of working um, in Lawrence uh, um, with respect to reviewing the ordinance, and I will say it's one of the most robust and in line with best practices. And with all due respect to the citizen who spoke, I just want to correct a few misconceptions. The federal law already raised the age to 21 for the sale of tobacco products to youth. It does not penalize youth for possession, youth, or sale. And I believe others have spoken to the inequity in that practice at the local or the state or the federal law, or excuse me, level. Thus, it does not penalize for the purchase, use, or possession of tobacco products. Rather, it puts the onus on the retailers to abide by the law and restrict access of these products to youth. So yes, if you were to survey some of those individuals, they may not like the restrictions that are imposed upon them. However, the health benefits later in life when their brains have developed will indicate they will be grateful that these products were restricted from them at a very vulnerable age. I wanted to mention a few things about this ordinance. One in that it creates comprehensive definitions for tobacco products. And in most localities that includes hookah because if you want to include all retailers with respect to enforcing that law, you cannot create exemptions for those that wish to sell to youth, and that includes hookah, absent cultural practices. And in many cases, the majority of hookah products that are sold are flavored products. There are very few hookah retailers that sell tobacco-flavored or tobacco-originated hookah products um, absent flavors which again are marketed and targeted for sale to youth and young adults. Second, it requires all tobacco retailers to be licensed. There are no exemptions for cigar, uh, luxury cigars, premium cigars, specialty products. All products fall under this license at, licensing scheme. Third, it, the, the fee for licensing is reasonable and actually it's fairly low compared to some other localities, but it is in line with your demographics and the number of retailers for the density and income levels of your population. So that in and of itself was a very nice compromise for retailers to still be able to sell their products, but also to maintain a certain level of responsibility in obtaining a license that would effectuate greater restrictions to youth access, uh, greater restrictions to youth for access to tobacco products. Lastly, uh, sorry, two more things. Number one, it has meaningful- I'm so there, sorry. Two Thank points, you. meaningful enforcement I and had... compliance. Thank you very much for Thank allowing you. me to contribute. Thank you. 
That's yeah. no, great. All right. Um, good. Let's bring it back to the commission. Further questions or discussion? I guess I have a question for, for Maria. I know it was brought up in regards to 9-812C and wanting to strike it. And I'm looking at, I'm just going through the penalty piece of 9-8A117. Can you, I guess, I'm, I, I guess how I'm interpret how I'm interpret interpreting this is that we're not penalizing the user, but there was concern that the language suggests that we are. Am I looking in the right area to kind of? I know this yeah. one is for TRL and one is T21, but I'm reading both, and I I don't see where we're penalizing the user. Okay, so um, Maria Garcia, Assistant City Attorney. So on the vaping ordinance, which is number 9878 in that section that you pointed out, Commissioner, um, that is the violations and penalty section. It states that it's unlawful for any person to smoke in any area where smoking is prohibited. And so that's specific language to the user. Um, sections A above that and B above that target the um, person who owns the establishment. Right. Okay. And then you were comparing it to another section. You provided the section number, but I didn't quite catch it. Uh, sorry, it was 9-8A117. So I'm just, I'm looking through all the different sections, subsections, paragraphs. And I'm just, I'm, I'm reading through. If you go to E, where it says, with the exception of prosecution of any person 21 years of age, or older under 9-8A119C, the city of Lawrence shall not initiate criminal proceedings against any person other than tobacco. I think you're looking at the the model language. Oh, this is the model language. That's the model language. Okay. So if you go to, it's a little confusing though, but if you go to either page nine of page uh, eight and nine, well, actually eight eight, nine. Page, page nine of 59. Okay, that's why I was back, I was jumping around here. Yeah. Page nine and fifty-nine, so eight twelve C. That's what's right. Okay, and then you have to actually skip. Then they, the packet then has the model language, and you have to go down to page thirty-one to fifty-nine to get to the the second ordinance we're passing. In between was the model language, which is a little confusing. Okay, that's where I got mixed up because I was looking yeah. at the model language and not the draft. And that's just the licensing. Yes. So the part that was highlighted in the model language, that's that's not that's we're not, not being considered. Yeah, we're not considering. But we're not considering it. But we have so the concern was that 9-812C as as stated as interpreted that we would not there would not be any penalty to the user, well, as we're saying that there is as drafted, and as has existed for the last ten years, nine eight twelve C has been in there that says it's it is unlawful for any person to use it. What I think what the at least some of the presenters are asking us to strike right subsection C. Maria did left it in there because that's been there right, and she wants us to consider whether or not. We want to leave that in or not. Right, which 
what you said. Thank you for helping to clarify that. So I did leave it in, like Commissioner Finkelday said, just as written on subsection C in the ask um, is for you all to consider whether to strike it and remove it from the code. But it remains in here right now, as of right now. Dan, I guess I have a question for you. For you, you guys ready to to take this on? Yes, we asked for the, the start date of the beginning of the year, January one. Uh, you know, to get the logistics worked out and to you know start on the nice first of the year. Thank you, Commissioner. That was my question. Also. Um, it's an unusual arrangement, it seems, and I just want to be sure that the fees it generates actually gives you what you need to enforce it in the way that it's modeled here. And and that there's a an opportunity if, if things aren't working out that you'll be able to communicate with us. Oh, absolutely. You know, we want to share all the information we gather from this, not only the, the from the regulatory side, but also, you know, what are the fees uh, bringing in? What are the costs that they're covering? And because we want to make sure that we're transparent that this isn't about bringing in, this isn't a money-making venture for, for us. This is really just about trying to cover costs. Any other questions or discussion? I, I guess. Oh, sorry, Vice Mayor. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Yeah, this is Vice Mayor Larson. I appreciate everybody who's come forward to, to talk about this. This has been a long process for us. Um, we first brought it up in the commission in, in, in 2000, I believe it was 2018. I, in February 2018, I met with four high school students along with Charlie Bryant and they presented their or their uh, program to me as to how they wanted to um, pass the T21 um, ordinance. And from there, it's um, it's been a long four years, but I'm glad we've gotten to this point. I've been a supporter of this since the beginning, and I think it's an excellent um, opportunity for us to to um, you know help students you know get past that age where hopefully they wouldn't start smoking. And so I really appreciate all the work that's been done on it and all the patience that everybody's shown to get to where it is today. So I'm gonna support this. Did you have a comment on this article we were discussing? Yeah, on C? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fine with it being in there. Hmm. Okay. Any other comments? I'll, I'll come back to see in a second, but okay. I guess I would I, I'd want to say um, first I appreciate um, the effort that we went through both um, Maria for her work on this. I know that public health worked on this, and the American Heart Association. Whenever you create a licensing scheme, um, there's a lot of legal aspects to that, um, and when you're talking about enforcement and new laws, so there was a lot of intricacies to this. Um, and so I appreciate everyone's effort on that. And, and I know it's taken some time, but these things are all complicated. So I appreciate everyone's work on that. And, and I, I would add that, you know, I know there has been some work from the chamber and others to, to reach out to retailers to, to get their feedback. And 
and um, you know we we don't have retailers here speaking out against it. Um, and I think a part of that is because they're already licensed at the state level. They're already licensed in other areas, and um, and so and and then the cost. You know, I had. I know a few people were waiting to see what the cost was before they decided if they were going to be for or against this. And, and I do think the 260 is a reasonable amount and, and again, has not generated that um, that outcry that obviously a much higher amount would have. So appreciate everyone's work on that. Appreciate um, Dan and, and his department working on this and getting this set up and, and how that came out. So. Um, you know, it, it's been a long process, but, I, you know, I certainly support it. We can come back and talk about A12C in a second, but otherwise uh, I'm very happy with the final outcome of these two um, ordinances. Yeah, I, I support it. I, I would just like a little bit more, like everybody else, a little bit more clarity about Section C. Um, um, but, yeah, other than that, man, I'm fully behind it. Let's go ahead and try to address that so that we give uh, Maria and everyone the direction they need. So, Maria, um, forgive me, um, you know, if I didn't catch it the first time. Why, why again did, are we leaving it in there? I've left it in there is because it would be a significant uh, change for the penalty section and it's really a, a policy question in staff's opinion on whether you want to remove penalties for users and just leave it for um, the uh, business owner, for example. So it's uh, really a, a policy question. That we that we wanted to leave for your consideration. I don't necessarily have a recommendation. I just wanted to add, um, as I said in my opening remarks, that the reason that it was in there um, is really to give consideration to people who are also using the same public area and to try to lessen second smoke <laughs> there. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I would I would add that this is what makes it illegal to smoke in a public place. If right. with removal of this section, we would cause some problems re regarding that, and and you would you would kind of eviscerate that whole portion of the section. We're not trying to punish someone for being addicted to, to uh, cigarette smoke, but I think the, the reason for this is the protection of others from secondhand smoke. So that I just wanted to clarify that. Gotcha. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate that. Thank you. I thought I was going crazy. So then that means that. Um, uh, say individual businesses, individual restaurants, this gives them the ability to remove people who are smoking from their premises. Correct. Okay, good. All right. Yes. Um, <laughs> does anyone, Maria or others, um, anyone have statistics on how many do we charge people at all with smoking in, 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 in this town? I mean, is that a, a criminal offense that happens a lot? Um, Assistant City Attorney Maria Garcia. Um, in the last five years, um, let me just double check my notes. I believe there were, um, this was cited three times um, under this particular ordinance. So it is not utilized very often. Um, and those statistics are from municipal court. Looks like Chris King got on too. I don't know if he had a comment. 
Yes, I, and I just want to confirm I was able to pull it up. Three three cases in the last five years. Yeah, uh, Chris King, Fire Medical, and Maria's 100% correct. So there was three uh, uh, three in the last five years, and, um, and then uh, one in um, um, allowed on a premises, no smoking allowed on a premises. There was so. Uh, 100% correct. So it doesn't happen very often. And uh, typically, uh, there are challenges, obviously, by the time we get there to enforce it. So. so I guess I, I mean, I understand the, myself, I understand the, the, the reason not necessarily to punish the user. On the flip side, you know, we're leaving fire, we're placing replace with the health department on this. And it is our entire smoking ban. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so I guess. You know, maybe Dan, when you do these reports, I mean, if you can report back to us, if all of a sudden we see a large uptake and for some reason tickets being given out to minors or others using it, um, I think something that, we need to address. But my guess is we'll see the same low numbers. Um, and I'm comfortable with the way the language is now, but I'd certainly want to watch that in case something bizarre happens among our enforcement. Yeah, I think that points out a, a good point. Uh, case for waiting till January 1. Those kinds of questions are what, what we need to work with FireMed and Maria and others to, to make sure that we're gonna capture the data you want from day one. Uh, so I think what you're asking us to do is work with, with uh, city staff to make sure that you get the data you want and we'll do that. Thank you. So with that, I mean, I, I just will leave it in for now unless we see a problem it's myself. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, other policy concern about hookah, are we satisfied with um, what they've shown us here? I am. I have no objections. I'm satisfied. Vice Mayor? Yep, I'm fine. All right. Um, sorry, Maria Garcia, is there another item here that you need or were those the main two? Assistant City Attorney Maria Garcia, those were the only two. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, with that then, we might need some Motion. motions. We might need more than one motion. Well, it looks like they have it together. So we move okay. to adopt on first reading ordinance number 9878 and ordinance number 9946, establishing the new various new provisions regarding tobacco use and licensing within the city of Lawrence, Kansas. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for being here, for your hard work over the years, and um, for being such a good partner. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, that brings us to commission items. Are there any commission items that commissioners would like to bring up? Uh, yes. Uh, I know that we're going to receive an update on the temporary support site for the homeless community. Um, I would uh, really... Uh, like us to, I know also that we're working on our communication and community engagement in terms of, you know, getting our information out, um, which is admirable. Um, but uh, given the, the attention that's been paid to that site and other things that uh, um, I, I think uh, we have some partners in town that uh, we probably would need to engage a little bit more to go ahead and clarify some points that, that might have been missed. So, um if there's any way that uh, you know we could have 
a more substantive update or uh, a method to go ahead and disperse that information, um, I'd, I'd be all for it. Um, I, I don't know. I would suggest, thank you. Thank you. Let's see what, it looks like we may have some people in the public who want to comment on the city manager's report in that regard, and that may be an opportunity for us to give some direction to staff. Feel good? Yep. Okay. Any other commission items? Okay. Uh, let's move to the city manager's report. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Commission, um, there are four items that we're updating you on. Um, I'll talk about a couple and then maybe turn it over to uh, Danny. Um, the uh, utility billing report is a pretty standard one, just updating everybody on that one. Um, I think we're uh, answering a question that came up um, at a previous meeting about the short-term rental code. Hopefully that's responsive um, to what you were looking for. Um, and then um, I'll maybe just kick it over to Danny if she wants to walk through. We, we are updating you on the short-term uh, temporary support site for the homeless community. Um, and as you as you note, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of communication that we are um, working on to try and get out to the community. Um, a lot of the efforts that we've done so far are to actually provide services and get a lot of the work done. Uh, but uh, we we understand that there's a lot of questions out there, and we do plan to put put a lot more information in the community. Evening, Mayor Commissioners. Um, Danny Walters with uh, Planning and Development Services. Um, we do have also uh, Jen Wolsey on the call, who is our project manager for the support site. Um, we just wanted to provide you a uh, just a simple update just to, to let you know how things are going. We are working very closely with Porter's team for communications to uh, put out a, a pretty robust set of information on, on the website. We're working through uh, some FAQs of some of those more frequently asked questions, and we are planning on doing quite a bit more community engagement, not only around the support site, but also for our long-term plans. So um, if, uh, for specific questions, I can turn it over to Jen since she, she is really handling that day-to-day -day of the site and uh, is having the most interactions with, with the folks in that, uh, in that particular neighborhood and with the business owners. This is Jen Woldley, I'm Homeless Programs Coordinator with the City of Lawrence Planning and Development. Um, I can provide a little bit of an update in reference. I know that a lot of people are just questioning where we're at as of right now. So we started the first um, section of the support site with 48 sections, I would say, or 48 spots, um, recognizing that there is a tent, a city provided tent for each one of those spots. Um, it's a spot per household. So some of those spots may include one individual or it may include a couple. And then this past week, we um, started on the second phase of this first site, which um, included 30 additional more sections. And so um, again, we have 78 sections as of right now. I do not foresee that we will extend this um, anymore just due to the spacing situation. And we also are always focusing on safety and things like that. So um, 
this will not cover the whole need, but this is um, definitely what we're working with right now. As of today, we had 77 individuals that were currently staying um, at that site. I can answer any questions. Well, one question, when's the update on getting water to that location? I thought I saw someone working on that. I didn't know if we had an update on that. Yes, so we've actually had water out there for um, since almost a week and a half. So all okay. that we're providing is just the one water source. Um, it's not a full line um, due to some restrictions with development that we have to also follow around zoning. So we can't um, provide a full developed campsite. Um, that's why we're referring to it as a support site and not a campsite. So there is access to water out there, but it's not enough to be able to put the shower trailers and things like that out there that was at Woody Park. I, I guess that was one of the questions I had as well, is just a uh, I think we were told beforehand that we would be using Woody as a model for it. And we had a lot of those amenities there and we purchased those amenities to be used later. Um, so I, that's kind of where I had a question of, you know, given this need there, why are we not able to go ahead and use them? Definitely. And so I, I, we are definitely, when we look at, again, we're talking about two different sites and I think that that is where some of the confusion lies and we, our team is going to do a better job of explaining those two separations. So we have the temporary site in place now, and that was something that we just needed to put in place as soon as possible to try to help meet some of this need with the plan that we are also moving forward with a long-term site. And so we've got the temporary site in the long-term. Again, we don't use the word permanent because um, homelessness is not permanent. And um, so with the long-term site, it will be more modeled as Woody was um, with this temporary site because of the fact that, um, yes, there is camping allowed in the um, commercial district city property when there isn't alternative shelter sheltering options. There's still zoning that states that we can't um, develop a full campsite. And so developing a full campsite would be consisting of like putting electricity out there, putting that full water source out there. And those trailers require those two things. And so we're kind of just flying right underneath our own zoning requirements um, to be able to provide this temporary service again um, as just a support while we do continue working as hard as we can and as fast as we can to um, create and develop that long-term site, which again, the long-term site will have the trailers and all those things in place. Okay. Question um, probably for Danny, I guess. Um, I know one of the things that the letter from the business owners requested and, and one of the things we've talked about for a while is, you know, continuing to work with the community shelter on increasing their capacity. And I know we, we passed on the consent agenda extending their um, second half funding. Um, but I, any update on any continuing conversations on with the community shelter about increasing their capacity, what we can do to help them increase their capacity? 
Um, this is Danny Walters. Um, we we are continuously in talks with the community shelter. Um, we are, as we have been, working with the county on on making sure that um, any agreements going forward have the same expectations and the same um, the same uh, metrics to hit. So um, all I can say is that that's an ongoing conversation. Um, hopefully we will have more information um, soon on that. So. Um, an additional follow-up question. Are we still on track for, I know that when you gave a previous presentation, you were anticipating March, 2023 as um, not necessarily a hard benchmark, but uh, a goal of being able to, you know, have enough correlated information to come back with us to um, extol on the, you know, the temporary site, and then also the permanent site and then other plans beyond that in terms of supportive housing and, um, you know, things of that sort. Are, are we still on track for that or? This is Danny Walters. That is certainly what our goal is and that is what we are working towards. Um, I are, We've been working on that long-term piece while we're doing the shorter-term piece. So, you know, we, we may not have everything in place at that point, but we will be working towards that date as our as our benchmark goal to get something set up and to get some plans. And, you know, th some of it depends on when some of the, you know, supportive housing will be starting to come online. Um, as we know, that takes time to build, especially with delays right now, supply chain issues, those kind of things. So um, the, the the longer term, we are most definitely still looking at that March date to, to have something concrete. And there'll be updates along the way as well as we are working towards that. So um, it's not something we're starting on March 12th, so. Um, just an additional thing. I'm sorry to pepper you with questions on this. How have we been in terms of, uh, have we, I know, granted, I know it's not necessarily like Woody, but how have the, has there been a good, good presence of supportive services um, and uh, nonprofit partners uh, been able to, you know, kind of help and assist? Um, I know with other projects, we've had that. Um. This is Jen Wolsey, Homeless Programs Coordinator. Um, I think that we had a slow start to be completely transparent, but as in the last couple weeks, um, as we um, really come online, um, we have had Burt Nash staff out there. We've had um, LCS's staff out there. Um, we've had Heartland Radax staff out there. So definitely what we're seeing is that um, we are being successful with the plan that this will be a location where service providers can definitely come out and locate their clients. Where in the past, um, there was a lot of time, I don't wanna say wasted, but spent trying to find their clients instead of providing services. So that we have been successful with that. And um, again, Bush and LCS um, specifically have worked to set up a schedule that they're actually coming out and providing um, several hours a day 
coming out there and working with clients and kind of building those relationships. And they've also taken a huge role in some of that community engagement and education that is um, taking place now. Um, definitely, this is presented an opportunity for a lot of voices to come forth. And so I definitely appreciate the partners coming forth as well and helping um, with my role in reference to that education. Any other questions? Um, huh? Yeah. Um, are there any, this is a public comment item. Are there any people here to speak? Yes, Hello, Courtney. Hi, excuse me, Ms. Shipley. Uh, this is Tim Olson. I'm of the homeless community, as you've already talked to me before. I'm here to present and request that you guys reconsider some of the monies that have been funded to this as to opening up and reviewing the status of the existing home shelter that they have over by this uh, by the police department. It used to house 150 people from what I've been told. I've never been there, but right now I believe they're at somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 people. If they took that 150, it would relieve a lot of pressure off of her while she continues, Jen, and gains the ground on the rest of the development that she needs to do. It is also something that's already there and should be in full use. We passed the COVID situation that caused the lowering of the people in there. If it's staff, Use some of the monies to hire new staff. If there's room and something wrong with the building, we could use some of the monies for that. It could help to develop an easier way for her to deal with a lot less pressure and a lot more quicker on everything going along as progressed. And I also have another thing to say is I'm doing this as free time for my own self. I have just gotten my almost okay to my first apartment in over four years or about four years i gotta make it before the february deadline i'll make four years and i have my apartment but i had to use the fact that i am of age of 62 and that got me to the top of the list the other people don't have that advantage i'm i'm considering an advantage to be old it is in this case but what about the people that are young out there that I care about and need housing just as bad? They are just as important and we need to fund more money so that the housing people can do more with helping them with sleeping bags, warm clothes, things that are keeping them from freezing to death on nights like tonight. I'm lucky I got stuff like that. I'm from the Northland, I know how to do this. That's why I'm here. And I don't have nobody backing me tonight because it's too cold. They're in bed. They're wrapped up in their covers and I don't blame them. But I got the ability and I can walk in this and it don't bother me. I know how. I'm proud to be here. Proud to talk to all of you. And I really think some of my ideas are worth banking on and actually using. I would really like your time and consideration to reopening. Time. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Further comments? 
Yeah, this is Chris Flowers, and I I would support um, increasing the amount we're spending on the homeless. Um, I I went I was invited out to tour the the shelter. Um, I think Monday, yeah, yesterday, um, and they could use more. Mo- I mean, they need more staff to have more people because if they only have two staff members, that's an over. Oh my gosh! Just imagine a hundred people with just two staff members. I mean, there are some of the people have challenges, um, and. If, if we want more people in the shelter, which, I mean, we, sh- we shouldn't want people in the shelter. I mean, we need, we need housing first. I mean, that's, the, that's what I was told is the re- research shows that's the best way. I mean, the shelter is just a Band-Aid, but we, we, we have it, so we should be funding it more so we can get more use out of it and also um, there's that petition going around and I'm I'm totally for giving more money to the the shelter and for the homeless but I'm against prohibiting people from camping I mean I think they should have the option if that if they would prefer to camp as opposed to being in, in a shelter. I mean, that's, that's an option they should have, but I, I don't think we want them being forced to be, have to camp if they would prefer to be in the shelter. Um, and also just think about, I, when it comes to how much we fund the shelter, I believe it's less than 300,000. And I think earlier this year, we did that whole, we're doing a, Spending money on an outside consultant over rebranding the city, you know, p- potentially having a new logo. If if we can spend a hundred thousand on a on coming up with a new logo, you mean to tell me we can't spend more than three hundred thousand to keep people from freezing to death, to give them shelter? It's just it's crazy how what we spend money on. And then how, when we compare how much we spend on some other projects, how much we're spending on the homeless. I mean, I, I just wonder how much we spend on the Chamber of Commerce. Or, and there's talk about potentially giving millions in tax break incentives for some new KU, their whole research park development. I mean, we could, we could be finding ways to spend more on this problem. Thank you. Thank you. Other comments? Hi, I'm Melanie Valdez. I'm the interim executive director at Lawrence Community Shelter. And I have had the opportunity to meet with each of you this year, along with um, the county commissioners and several community partners and community members. And, um, you know, one of the continued narratives that, uh, that we've tried to communicate is to meet the needs of the community, um, that we do need more funding. And we realize that that funding should not fall on any one place. Um, but as a nonprofit agency that provides services to those experiencing homelessness, you know, there's not any money to be made. And we really rely on public support. And um, currently, we are not able to offer our staff um, a living wage. And Due to that, we are not able to retain staff at a proper rate. And um, 
And I can tell you my staff were scared to death of having, you know, being forced to put two to three times as many people uh, with the service or, or the services we have to offer currently. And then I know Boulder is talked about a lot. Um, Boulder um, is kind of similar in size to Lawrence, a little bit larger. Um, and they have a 160-bed emergency shelter. They've been running at 145 um, due to the pandemic. And when you look at numbers, um, you learn that the money invested by the community and the local governments is very much higher. And um, our payroll at the shelter runs under one million a year and their payroll runs about three million. Um, so that kind of gives us a little bit of an idea of what the cost is to support these kind of services. And they are um, part of the coordinated entry system. They have housing programs. Um, and the local government is actually focusing on uh, acquisition of property to allow them to house some of those most, um, the people with the highest barriers that uh, landlords may not be as willing uh, to lease to until they get um, some more stability. So, um, you know, there, I think as a community, we can continue to uh, kind of garner that support, uh, provide education. We all know this is a very complex issue and I really appreciate that the answers um, when the shelter comes up to the community is that it is much more complex than people realize and we are all trying really hard to work together to find those solutions and no matter what our interests are, what our perspective is, you know, whether it's a business or a nonprofit, we all want to see the solution. So I think it's really Time. just us finding a way. Thank you. Thank you. Any further public comment? <clears throat> uh, hello again, city commissioners. Putting on my uh, board hat for Lawrence Community Shelter. Um, just wanted to quickly give my support for our interim ED um, and um, you know, addressing these community concerns of wanting um, more support and funding, um, but also in parallel with housing first model that we're trying to do with um, the community shelter, um, but also keeping a capacity at a safe number um, and to work with our partners um, all across our community um, in efforts in hand step for a common solution uh, for a solution. So just wanted to quickly give my support to our ED. Thank you. Thank you. You're supposed to sign here. Uh, my name is Howard Callahan. I'm on the Burt Nash Homeless Outreach Team. Um, worked out at LCS for six years um, under every director up to up until um, the current and recent um, interim directors. Um, I actually still smell like campfire because I was out at the city support site for most of the day today. Um, and I can say that I got um, an ID for a guy, got a couple of folks having some medical and med appointments set up today. Um, got to know a number of new folks in town. Um, 
There's a few points I would like to make. Um, one, I think it would be a horrible mistake if we ran with the trend that I see being put forth to try to pit the support side against the shelter in terms of funding and support. I think that is insane. Um, I think that the shelter has been through a lot in the last couple of years, um, you know, and had to more and has had to more or less start from scratch a couple of times. And if they're saying that they need more funding in order to build up the staff um, to expand capacity, that that should be at least seriously considered. Um, I would also like to shoot down the rumor that I keep hearing in town that we're having scores and scores of out-of-towners being bussed in. That talking point has come up literally every time anything having to do with shelter or homelessness has been brought up in Lawrence, and it has never been true, ever. I mean, maybe 10 to 20% at any given moment, and not like being shipped in from out of town, usually more like folks crash landing in Lawrence, and I can tell you that you will break the backs and attrition a lot of really talented providers if there's any shift to try to like get all of our providers getting all of the out-of-towners to go away like we're not here for that um, and there's a lot of skill at the table a lot of folks that have you know are not here to keep the outsiders away like we're here to actually try to get folks into a better situation manage the harms of an already bad situation um, I think that the city support site is actually doing really well in a lot of ways. I'm starting to see signs of like leadership from within the community and a community developing there. Um, I'm really glad to see how many agency workers have been coming out. It's been cool to get to know some of the new shelter staff. Um, they seem to really get a lot out of it also. Um, I'd like to see more of the community out there. Um, wouldn't mind having a standard that you actually go out and hang out and help out at the site for a day or two before you have an opinion, honestly. Um, I don't know. I could go on on the subject for a bit. It's been most Fine. of my life for quite some time. But um, yeah, support the shelter in funding as much as you possibly can. Um, bring folks together as much as you possibly can. This like pitting agencies against each other thing. I know it happens to a certain degree organically because of like funding rationing, but like the more we can fight against it and actually be bringing folks together. Um, also, I have a lot of respect for Jen's leadership. I have a lot of respect for Melanie's leadership. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You've already spoken. I can't, I can't let you speak again okay. right now. Um, was there any other public comment? Hello, my name is Kristen Eldridge, and I have a couple of questions. Um, the first would be for city staff. Uh, I'm understanding that the support site currently has has um, capacity for 78, and there are 77 there now. And what is the plan when when more people need assistance? need immediate support assistance. What is the plan there? My second question is for city staff, manager, commissioners. Um, what does the continued community engagement and communication look like? And if you can't answer that now, can you give um, some reassurance there will be regular and ongoing um, engagement and updates for as you 
develop your more robust plan for working with and supporting homeless people. Thank, Thank you very much. Is there any other comments in the room? And then uh, Kristen will get staff to answer you. Is there any public comment online? No, Mayor. Okay. Uh, Jen or Danelle, you have any uh, resp response for um, Ms. Aldridge's questions? So this is Jen Wolsey, Homeless Programs Coordinator for the city. Um, I will address the first question. Um, so as we stated, there are 78 sectioned areas. And again, um, right now we have 77 um, individuals there as of today. Um, I will say that that does that's not necessarily all 78 sections because some of those sections include households, which would be one or two people. And so that is counted as our overall population, but not necessarily our household population. So um, as far as what happens once we are um, at max capacity, um, I think that's where we're continuing to have those conversations. Um, our hope is, is that once the winter shelter, the city ran winter shelter opens up, that that will have a capacity of 75 beds that open up. So again, that's going to, in, you know, that's going to create a dent. But um, I think that we are all very um, honest in the realization that um, we do have anywhere between 150 to 170 unsheltered individuals in um, Lawrence, Kansas right now. And so, um, unfortunately, um, yeah, I don't have the perfect answer on that. We're just going to continue to try to create services. And again, the hope is, is that with that long-term um, site that it will be created in a space that will provide a safe, appropriate space so that we can have separation, but that it will meet that full need alongside other different sheltering options that come into or that come online that we're all discussing. This is Danny Walters. Um, as, in terms of the second question, there is absolutely a commitment from staff to, to continue public engagement and really enhance the public engagement. Um, we, we understand that it is critical for us to make sure that we're getting information out to the community, um, making sure the community knows what the support site is and what it, what it isn't and also getting input around those longer term solutions that we're working towards. The, the public input there is gonna be critical. So we, um, you, you, we are most definitely very committed to continuing that conversation and making it a more frequent conversation. We've, uh, we've had to be pretty reactive at this point in getting everything set up and um, working through things as we're, uh, as we're building it. So um, once, uh, as we're getting a better, a better grip on the project, a better grip on the program and kind of what the, uh, what we're seeing, then that helps us to be able to get that message out to the community. And that, and it's not just our group, it's, um, you know, making sure that the city as a whole is getting good information out, out to everybody. So, and like I said, that's something that we're working very closely with Porter's team on. So, so short answer, yes, there's, there's most definitely a commitment from staff to, to make that happen. And I will just piggyback off that and just say as well as all community partners, um, we 
we have already had a camp, a working camp group kind of involved with all different sectors of the community being involved. One of the things that we discussed two weeks ago, which we are actually putting in place and have our first meeting scheduled for next week, is to also um, have a subgroup that's in place that involves all different, again, sectors of the community that come together and um, focus on community engagement and education as well, um, so that it's not just directly coming from what the city's doing, because again, um, homelessness is a community issue, so therefore it requires you know, community solutions. So part of those, or that group is going to include folks from LCS, folks from Burt Nash, folks from um, Heartland Raid Act, like all, again, business leaders. We've invited um, all kinds of individuals who've agreed to be on that group too and play a part in some learning sessions with the community around um, just all the different competing values, but also coming together to learn more about this population as a whole and what their needs are. Thank you. Uh, any other questions, commissioners, discussion? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think on this one, I, I, I'd like to go first because I think going last will drive me nuts. Mm -hmm. um, and I, Sherry, I, I'd even dare you to time me on this because I, I, I think what we've seen here is, and I first want to say I appreciate um, our housing team. So Jen, Cicely, Danny, the whole entire team. I know you guys have a video out um, that highlights the work that you do. And um, I appreciate um, what you've been able to prepare for us in regards to what's going on. I think we've seen it here with discussion between commissioners and through the community. We still, you know, the work is just beginning and we are, we are trying to do a very Herculean effort um, with with intentionality, um, purpose, um, grace, and transparency, and I really would like you know I hope our our community and our partners truly understand that um, what we are dealing with is it may be slightly nuanced to some in our community um, and in our region, um, but you know. As a country, um, we have grossly divested in mental health workforce and funding for affordable access to housing on across the spectrum. And what we are in the process of doing, I couldn't be more proud that we are doing it. Um, and we are, I don't wanna say figuring out figuring it out as we go, but we are figuring out the way to do it with dignity to individuals um, for our community. Um, this is not a us, them, they kind of thing. Um, as Jen said, this takes the community. Those individuals who are experiencing homelessness, whether it's chronic, whether it's temporary, um, whether it's couch surfing, um, they are individuals in our community. And I think as this work progresses, uh, we will find, we will continue to build on the strengths that we have within our, within our community partners, as well as our housing team. And I'm excited to be, um, to be able to be a part of that and helping to have dialogue and craft policy around that. But if there's anything that I could stress to our community that this is difficult, complex work. 
and I've said it from the beginning, that you can see homelessness as a three-headed monster, even a multi-headed monster, it's bigger than that. Um, and so we all have a lot of learning and navigating to do, and I caution against haste of asking us to move and increase things, because if capacity is like pressure, and you put pressure on something, and it's gonna blow. So if we're upset about things now, imagine if we put too much pressure on a nonprofit to do something that they are not, that they do not have the ability, the capacity, or the funding to do. And that's not fair to them, and it's not, it, is, it is not right of me as a commissioner to force that on them. But I think we are getting there, and we are now understanding the nuances and the complexities and the intricacies of what this is in our community. And we're doing, we're putting the, we're putting the pieces in place to do this effectively and efficiently with intentionality and grace and purpose. Any other discussion? Well, that wasn't too long, Commissioner. So. Thank you. Um, but no, I, I would just say I appreciate everyone's work. You know, appreciate the, certainly the work of um, staff, Jen and, and Danny. I'd also, you know, uh, of course, highlight that we have had lots of people in this community, including Burt Nash and LCS, doing this work for a long time. And in some ways, we as the city are the new people um, coming into that. Um, and part of that's because we, we saw the need, but also understand that a lot of that good work is going on. And, you know, I continue to support, um, you know, using our housing dollars, both the money we have left in 2022 and in 2023, to increase um, capacity at the shelter. And, you know, and, and, it's not as easy as just saying, okay, here's the money and you know, there's the capacity. There's a lot more to it, and I understand that, Melanie. I appreciate all your work, and that's why I asked the question earlier, how are those conversations going? Because I know it's um, not just a, you know, you know, write a check and it's, it's over. Um, and so continue to support that, though, that um, continue to support ways we can do that while at the same time support what we're doing both short and long term at the support side and, and others as commissioner seller said it's a it's a complex issue um and but it's one that we have to continue to work on and finally i'd say as we continue to say you know i, I want to have that discussion soon when we can when we get to that right point again not to rush it to get to the what we're going to do with the opera funds and what that looks like for long-term supportive housing because as someone said, we need we, we need to, to have more supportive housing. We need to have more housing um, if we're going to ever solve this problem. Housing first is the ultimate solution, and, and we have to get there. And sometimes that's hard to see when you're in crisis, uh, and, and we have a lot, of, a lot of that going on. But we need to focus on the, the long term as well. Thank you. Any other comments? Yeah, it's, I just wanted to kind of wrap it up. Um, I agree with... Commissioner Sellers, Commissioner Finkeldai. I am truly appreciative of all the work that Jen has put forth and Danelle and um, you know, um, Melanie and, and of course uh, uh, Tim, I think it was. Uh, sir, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to get into housing. That's awesome. Um, that's, a, that's great to hear. Um, that's what we want. Um, and uh, what I'm really, really encouraged by is our community and the enthusiasm that's been shown. Now, granted, it's more or less folks are trying to figure out how they can help and how they can participate, but they want to. They want to go ahead and be a part of the solution to go ahead and make that this better. And uh, it's that's 
you know, I'm trying to be the optimist about it and look at it that way that we can, we at least have that ability to garner that and direct it and hopefully come to a fruitful solution. So, um, but uh, as you know, the folks from LCS uh, have said, and um, uh, Christina, uh, Representative Haswood, that it's going to take it's going to take dollars and it's going to take resources and it's going to take staff as well as the gentlemen before, and it's going to take a commitment by the entire community to go ahead and go this direction, to go ahead and help folks that live in our community. So um, I'm highly encouraged that uh, people care so much about it, and uh, I'm excited about our future in this endeavor. So. Thank you. Uh, let's go ahead and see if we can move on to calendar items. Just real quick on calendar items, I am very sorry to be missing the Planning Commission Orientation Lunch. Week. I'm going to go be heading to Boston to visit my daughter on Parents Weekend, but Jeff, if you can pass on to the Planning Commission how sorry I am for missing that, and it's always a great uh, session to be at, and I'm sorry to miss that, but uh, I have a good excuse. Jeff, that's not what Commissioner Finkeldye told me, but I'll, I'll let it slide. <laughs> Any other items? I will entertain a motion. Motion to adjourn. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Passes five to zero. Thanks, everyone. Good job. Yeah.